Hi, this is David Douglas, Managing Director of EBO at the Digital Agency. EBO are the proud sponsors this year of Radio Molly and Molly's Digital Programme. Good afternoon, everybody. You're very welcome to Molly. My name is Simon O'Connor. I'm the director here uh, at the museum. We're delighted that you could join us um, in person and online for this uh, George Moore Kaleidoscope. Um, a very special thanks to our visitors uh, who've travelled from abroad to be with us today as well. Um, it sounds like a kind of a beginning of a wedding speech. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll read out notes from, from people now. Um, the, 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 the idea for this museum began um, uh, around the possibility of creating a Joyce exhibition uh, with materials from the National Library of Ireland in the old UCD Assembly Hall and Exam Hall, the Aula Maxima, that's just across the corridor from us here. Um, and that idea expanded over time to, uh, to, um, to meet the challenge of including writers um, writing across both the English and the Irish languages um, and from the medieval period right up to the present day. Um, Joyce, in a way, within this museum acts as a kind of a, a, a beating heart uh, of the museum. There's a number of permanent exhibitions that are given over to him and then the temporary exhibitions that occur in the museum and um, the on-site programming, all of the digital activity um, is how we focus on all the other writers, um, uh, apart from Joyce. Actually, uh, there's a, a beautiful tree at the back garden, if any of you get to pop out uh, this afternoon. Um, there's an ash tree where Joyce had his graduation photograph uh, taken in 1902 when he was graduating uh, from the university here. And when we were working on the landscaping of the garden, I mean, we refer to it as the Joyce tree, and the landscaper, Kieran Beatty, um, uh, we had wanted to have just a lot of grass there for kids to play on and things like this. And Kieran said, well, you see, the problem with that is that tree, um, the Joyce tree drinks all the water in the garden, uh, which I thought was very uh, kind of interesting <laughs> at the time. And, um, and, 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 you know, it's very, it can be very easy to kind of give all of the attention um, to Joyce, but actually those temporary exhibitions, all that other programming, um, is our mechanism for focusing on other writers. And it's precisely through conversations like the one initiated with us by the deans um, and the Moore Association that we discover these opportunities um, in a way to explore other writers' uh, legacies. And shortly before the pandemic, in I think it was February actually, 2020, um, museum time is a kind of a different kind of time. It's a very slow, long, time and, uh, and conversations tend to go on for a while but just in February 2020 Charles and David Dean um, and we're very uh, uh, very lucky to be joined by David today um, had made contact with the museum via the National Library to explore the possibility um, of displaying Moore's death mask here uh, at Molly and their family um, had possession of the original mould um, and then a very beautiful bronze cast of it um, that had come down from their great-grandmother, uh, uh, Nina Kilkenny, Nemoor, um, who was uh, the author's sister. Um, so the bust eventually arrived uh, at the museum last year, and we're delighted to formally announce it uh, here today. So, so here it is, uh, and it's very, very, it's very, very beautiful. It's, um, it's a very elegant death mask. I was just saying, uh, speaking with Mary earlier on, and telling her about, um, we were looking at uh, James Clarence Mangan's death mask recently, um, and I mean, he really was in the throes of uh, demise, whereas Moore's is, Moore's is beautifully elegant. Um, 
we were delighted to take this piece uh, on loan, and I think with the eventual hope um, that it would be displayed permanently in a restored Moore Hall at some point in the future. So probably a little bit more on that uh, later this afternoon. Um, and we also felt that the piece was um, so important that it warranted a specially commissioned plinth. Um, so we worked with uh, the Dublin sculptor Andrew Clancy to produce this very beautiful um, oak and brass uh, hexagonal pl plinth, which, uh, which we think works really, really well um, with the proportions of the death mask. So hopefully they'll, they'll stay together uh, as well. But a thank you to David, um, to Charles, um, and to Mary for your work in, in bringing the death mask to us. Thank you. Um, working on literary exhibitions every day, as we do here uh, in the museum, um, one becomes aware uh, how easy it is for even the most successful and well-known authors to to slip from, slip from public view. Hi there. Uh, and the increasingly fast-moving publishing industry sees works slip out of print, um, writers disappear from curricula, um, and this can happen to the most prominent and nearly totemic names. Um, the task of keeping these legacies uh, alive often fall um, to a small number of interested readers, surviving descendants, um, and committed academics. And uh, throughout our conversations with Charles David uh, and Mary Pierce, I was really impressed by the, their energy and their commitment to promoting and encouraging an interest in Moore's work. Um, and I know that there are more well-known writers who don't enjoy that kind of rigorous, uh, enthusiastic support. Um, so I think it's important to acknowledge that work um, uh, of the Moore Association in the context of the broader uh, literary landscape and the importance of it. Um, a big thank you to Mary for all the work that she's put into both the loan uh, of the Death Mask and this afternoon's event. Um, this year is also the centenary of the publication of Joyce's Ulysses, which the museum here is very much at the centre of. So I'd also like to extend my thanks to Mary uh, for her patience in working with an institution caught up in the biggest artistic centenary uh, it will ever celebrate. Um, so thanks, Mary. Uh, before we hand over, uh, I'd also like to thank our wonderful lineup um, of panelists. We're delighted to welcome with us uh, uh, this afternoon Professor Adrian Fraser from the University of Galway, who's going to be chairing both panels. Uh, we have Catherine McSharry, the acting director of the National Library of Ireland, who is also uh, the library's lead um, on the development of this museum. Uh, we have Robert O'Byrne, author uh, and historian, whose wonderful work can be found uh, in print, uh, of course, and on his wonderful blog, The Irish Esthete. Um, and then we have Maeve Casserly, a uh, public historian and staff member uh, of the National Library of Ireland. Um, and then if she hasn't done enough around this event, Mary, Mary Pierce herself will be speaking to us about more and art. Uh, and finally, we'll be also joined by, in the afternoon by Professor Harry White uh, from the School of Music and University College Dublin, uh, sprinkled with some performances by the violinist uh, Kayla Kennedy. So greatly looking forward to it all. Uh, thank you. I'm going to pass you over to Mary Pearce from the George Moore Association. Thank you indeed, Simon. And as a trustee of the George Moore Association, I'd like to thank you all uh, for coming today and for your interest in George Moore. But uh, above all, I want to, to thank the deans because uh, this was what spurred the whole idea of having a George Moore event for an afternoon in Stevens Green. And you couldn't have a more suitable place, really, because it was George Moore's haunt. Uh, he lived in Eli Place, 
what is now the site of the Royal Hibernian Academy was George Moore's garden. And that's where uh, the play by Douglas Hyde uh, was put on. That led subsequently to music being composed by Michele Esposito for it. And uh, George Moore often stayed in the Shelburne, where you know there is a George Moore room exactly over the front door in prime position. So this is very much where he would like to be. He thought it was infinitely superior to Merrion Square, where there were only two steps up to every door. Whereas in Stephen's Green, there were ten with lanterns on either side. And you looked out over the wonderful green here that had been restored and made into a fantastic park by Lord Ardalone. And Moore speculated as to how much Guinness he had to sell to accomplish all the lovely work that turned it from a wilderness into, into a park today. So thank you for coming. Thank you for the interest. Thank you especially to Simon and to Molly for hosting us here today. And to David Dean, uh, who has given us the inspiration and supported us in absolutely every way all along the way. I'm looking forward to hearing the papers from very distinguished contributors. And I hope that you'll have plenty of questions and plenty of argument. And thank you again all. Splendid place. I haven't been here before. But uh, look at this fellow here now. That's, that's a moor. So look at him, then look there. And I see a similarity. It's true. Fantastic. Yeah, actually, I feel a little bit of a fraud standing here because there's so many experts on so many dis different aspects of George Moore. Um, but uh, from the family point of view, uh, first of all, I'd like to thank very much Mary, who's, who's been wonderful in the society and also arranging this event and uh, liaising with Simon. And thanks to Simon for, you know, mounting the, the death mask or whatever you do with a death mask and, and putting it uh, in a good location. And that was really our, our interest. Um, so uh, that it could be seen by a wider public. My mother, who was Dorothy Nina Patricia Dean, she was the granddaughter of George's sister, who was Nina Moore, and became a Kilkelly. And my mother was a Kilkelly uh, until she married my father and became a, a Dean. Ironically, my father's mother um, maiden name was Kelly. So there was a link between Kill Kelly and Kelly. So um, I've been trained to produce that whenever I talk about the family. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and she, uh, she was born in 1925, my mother, um, and she did actually visit George Moore in London uh, towards the end of his life. I think he died in 1933. And she was in the same house as he was, but she didn't meet him because she was told he didn't like children or he was not so keen on children at that stage in his life. So she was in the house with him, but she never quite met him. But I feel that there's a connection all the way through to our uh, family. So um, 
and her sons are Charles, my brother, and myself, David. Charles lives in New Zealand now, so can't be here, but he actually um, started things moving with the death mask, and we've liaised accordingly, and also the books that um, my father collected, actually, of George Moore. Um, so uh, she died in uh, 2019, actually, so she lived to a good age of 94. I know some of you knew her and my father the same year, in a way. It was very sad just before the pandemic. In a way, it was, you know, they had a peaceful end of their life, and they both lived to 94 and the same year. Um, uh, so for... Um, she supported many George Moore events, both in, uh, in uh, Mayo and Dublin and, and also, I think, in Hull and Lille and, and Paris and so on, because they've been running over the years. It's been fantastic. I've supported one or two. I was working. Um, but uh, I did accompany a George Moore group to Castle Island just under 30 years ago. It was the 60th anniversary of his death and I know some of you I'm sure obviously know that um, an oration, he, his um, remains were put there in, in, uh, in a casket on the island because they weren't quite sure what to do with him and then uh, A.E. George Russell wrote an oration but then he didn't make it and Richard Best I think I'm right in saying read the oration and so when I was there thir just under 30 years ago, they asked me to read the oration standing on, on the tomb. So that, that's what I did. Um, and I'm not going to read you the whole oration, but you can look it up. Uh, but on, on, on it, the inscription is interesting. It says, he deserted, and I'm quoting Adrian's version from his book, because I, I, I had another version from my mother, but I'm, <laughs> it's more or less the same. He deserted his family and friends for his art, but because he was faithful to his art, his family and friends reclaimed his ashes for Ireland. So he died in London, he came back to Ireland. And, and I just sort of feel that it, it's correct that his death mask now also comes back to Ireland and stays here. And uh, that's our, our intention. So. And thank you very much for all your interest in George Moore. I've lived with him all my life and it's fantastic to see and, and the papers that I've heard over the years of such detailed and interesting study of different aspects of George Moore is, is fantastic and I'm hoping that maybe this will stimulate more interest in, in George Moore. So, thank you very much. I'm Adrian Fraser, and I'm chairing, which means sitting in the chair. I think uh, well, these three people perform, but the, uh, I'm not going to take up much more time because uh, maybe we'll have some time left over at the end for for questions. Uh, but the first speaker will be Catherine McCherry about the National Library collections of George Moore material. Catherine, thank you.
Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Um, it's a real pleasure to be here. Um, my office in the National Library is at number four Kildare Street, where there are four steps up to the door. Just, um, and um, it is, I suppose, for us a particular pleasure to be involved in events connected with George Moore because he was such a well-known figure at the National Library of Ireland. Um, and my colleague Maeve is going to talk a little bit later on about those uh, cultural networks um, of which the National Library was one of the hubs. And uh, this we're looking at here is the stained glass at the top of the mezzanine steps in the National Library of Ireland. And it's one of the nicest things in the National Library, I think. And it would have been one of the things that George Moore saw whenever he came into the National Library. So because we've been in the same building since it opened in 1890, everybody who has ever come in to the National Library to use its reading room has made their way in through the same path, through the um, gate, up the steps, through the columns, in the door, and up the stairs, at the top of which you see this beautiful stained glass. And there's something very powerful for, that, for us about that, I think, that sense of you are literally walking in the footsteps of everyone who has ever come into the National Library. Um, but everyone who has come into the National Library has not left quite the same vivid testimony as Moore has. And in several of his works, but particularly Hail and Farewell, he gives an extraordinarily atmospheric and evocative portrait of different aspects of the library. And the first thing that I think takes your attention there is he talks about this kind of world, this bustling world of Dublin's literary and, and scholarly culture. And he says, when he walks out, a hundred other odds and oddments I should meet there, everyone amusing to see and to hear. All the same, for a change of spectacle, it might be as well to stroll to the Gaelic League offices through Merrion Street and along Nassau Street. I should meet students on their way to the National Library, girls and boys, and an old derelict Jesuit whom I liked to see going by in his threadbare coat, tightly buttoned, a great Irish scholar. So the derelict Jesuit, I assume, is Father Deneen, the author of Deneen's Dictionary, who was an extraordinarily well-known figure in the National Library's reading room for many years. And apart from that kind of situation of the National Library in George Moore's world, we find him situating himself in that space. Um, as you will be aware, there's a long thread through Hail and Farewell about proving that Catholicism has, proved, has produced no good literature, no real literary culture. And he talks a lot about the role of the National Library in helping him to prove his thesis, largely in terms of how he's going to find other people to do the work to help him to prove his thesis. And he highlights particularly a figure whom you will know from Ulysses, uh, from James Joyce's Ulysses, uh, John Eglinton, who became a very great friend of his, um, always with a little kind of slightly caustic combative element to the friendship. Uh, but he talks about going to see Eglinton in the National Library. And he mentions a number of great French writers. And he says, all these were agnostics, just so you know. Uh, 
Guizot was a Protestant. His historical works have, I suppose, some value. John Eglinton will tell me about him. And glad of an excuse for a visit to the National Library, I went forth after dinner to talk literature again, arriving in Kildare Street about half past nine, when John Eglinton was writing the last of those mysterious slips of paper, cataloguing, I think he calls it. A visitor is welcome after half past nine, and in the sizzle of electric light, we debate till 10. Then he comes back to smoke a cigar with me, or I go home with him. John agreed that the bell might be rung, and we watched the odd mixture of men and women leave their books on the counter. John had to wait till the last left, and the last was a little old gentleman about five feet high who had come to the library every night for the last 30 years to read Dickens and nothing but Dickens. And a little later, he also expresses how he's going to draw John Eglinton's colleague, Richard Best, who also appears in Ulysses, into this um, extensive work that he's planning. A voice cries in my ear, have you looked into German literature? And I answer back, I know nothing of German literature, but we'll call upon Jen John Eglinton tonight. You see a sort of pattern emerging here in terms of um, his research practice. But John will only tell me that Goethe and Schiller were Protestants and that Heine was a Jew. He may mention that the Schlegels turned Catholic in their old age. Perhaps Best will be able to tell me. Best is John's coadjutor in the National Library, a young man with beautiful shining hair and features so fine and delicate that many a young girl must have dreamed of him at her casement window and would have loved him if he had not been so passionately interested in the infixed pronoun, one of the great difficulties of ancient Irish. And I think we see there this characteristic quality of Moore, the vivid detail that evokes the individual and also that caustic, humorous aspect that makes his work so fresh and so contemporary. I mean, we really feel like we're right back there with him, um, perhaps commenting, you know, slightly ironically to another friend about Best. And this literary world, which anchored itself very much in the National Library, is probably best represented in the National Library's collections in terms of what we have related to more in the book collection. And so, as Simon mentioned at the beginning, literary fashions come and go. It can be more or less difficult to find the material connected with a particular writer as the years pass by. And one of the things an institution like the National Library does is to make sure that there is always a copy of all of those works available for the long term. And those may be available in a whole variety of different ways. What we're looking at here is a shelf from W.B. Yeats's private library. So the Yeats family donated Yeats's archive to the National Library over decades and decades, starting in 1939 when Yeats died. And the Yeats library, his private library, was one of those donations. And it came into us as it was in the bookshelves um, out in Dawkey. So what we see here is how Yeats would have looked at his collections of George Moore on his shelves. And there is a very interesting array of material over the decades that are there in Yeats's library. 
Alongside these kinds of often first or rare editions, we have all kinds of other editions of Moore as well. There's more than 200 individual um, editions of his work, stretching from the very earliest days up to a translation of Esther Waters into Bulgarian. I'm not going to attempt to um, give you what Esther Waters is in Bulgarian, um, which was published in 2014. So any of... Moore's works that anyone ever wants to consult are available in the National Library, um, including the Yates Library, actually, which is in the director's office, um, but is also a working library. So periodically, someone will knock at the door from the manuscripts reading room to come and get a copy of one of Yates's books and bring them to, um, to our manuscripts reading room. One of the other areas where the collection is perhaps um, is, is noticeably strong is in imagery of Moore, prints and drawings in particular. And so what we're looking at here is the, a letter that was written to Moore um, by Orpen. And one of the lovely things about artists when they write letters is they very often illustrate them. And in fact, the illustration has really more taken over um, than, the, than the note itself. Um, and what we can see here is the text of the letter, where Orpen is saying to Moore, sorry, I did not see more of you when I was over in Dublin. I called a couple of times, but did not find you in. And what he has drawn here is a cartoon of Hugh Lane's cousin, um, Sarah Celia Harrison, at her easel, painting George Moore. So you can see she has George Moore on her easel and Orpen has drawn George Moore sitting for the portrait. And this is, I think, one of the real interesting strengths of the collection, particularly, I think, because Moore had such a distinctive appearance. So he lends himself very much to the kind of illustrations that you see in our prints and drawings collection. And here I've picked out two of those caricatures, one by Phil May and one by Grace Gifford Plunkett. And uh, perhaps there's someone with more extensive um, expert knowledge of Moore than I. I'm very interested to see his bunch of flowers here. His very first volume of poems was called um, uh, Flowers of Passion. And one of the things that I found as I was um, looking through the various pieces of work for today was the record for that work, which is in the National Library's catalogue, um, as is often the case, was obviously downloaded from another library or from another cataloging source because it gives us the title, it gives us the name of the author, and it gives a number of subject headings, one of which says children's poems. And I assure you that they are not children's <laughs> poems. <laughs> so I don't think it was only at the end of his life um, <laughs> that George Moore was less... Uh, less fond of children. Um, so I wonder if it might be a little, a little nod back to, to those poems, which were extremely heavily critiqued when they appeared, were very shocking. Um, and I believe Moore actually withdrew the volume um, subsequently. Um, so there is a copy of that in the National Library with some, some very interesting material in it. Alongside the books, um, which of course is what one might expect in relation to a figure like Moore, and those prints and drawings, which are perhaps a little more unexpected, um, there is quite a lot of manuscript material, obviously, in his own hand. Uh, so what we're looking at here, for example, is the 
a fair copy with um, emendations of part of Esther Waters. And this image is pasted into the front of that volume. And there's quite a number of chapters of, of Esther Walters that we have in, in, in this format. So you can see it's very distinctive hand. I love seeing uh, what it, where a writer has changed and altered things. And particularly where the published work is very well known and feels very crafted, there's something very illuminating and fascinating about seeing that the work did not come into being fully formed. And I suppose in the context of this world we've seen where Moore drops into the National Library late at night, um, we can imagine that he is in conversation with his literary friends and with his um, the critics whose work he draws on, that that is part of this work of creation that we can see actually coming to life on the page here. As well as manuscript drafts, there are very many letters, as you know. I was trying to think of a word that's not inveterate, which sounds sort of pejorative, <laughs> but Moore was a very dedicated correspondent. And um, what we uh, have in the National Library is correspondence from all kinds and to all kinds of different people. Uh, so, for example, at um, the very early part of our collection, so some of our, the earliest materials that came in to us, uh, we have two volumes of letters um, from George Moore to Morris Moore on literary and family matters. And um, we have 41 letters from George Moore to Richard Irvine Best. Um, so on literary topics, there's letters from George Moore to Douglas Hyde and a whole variety of letters that come to us through the decades and very often that appear in other people's collections. So that's often how some of the most interesting literary manuscripts and literary letters will come into a collection is they were sent to someone who incorporated them in the archive that then comes to the National Library. I also came across... Um, as, I was, as I was looking through some of our holdings, a really interesting piece, which was done by uh, one of his secretaries. So I was thinking about um, the work of a typist and a secretary in looking at a volume like this. And that particular volume was a the George Moore calendar, a quotation from the works of George Moore for every day in the year, selected by Margaret Goff. Um, who was his secretary on and off from 1901 to 1913, and herself an accomplished translator. And I would like to salute Margaret and any of the other typists who were involved with him when we look at the page that we can see here. Um, I'm also very interested, I haven't had a chance to look at it, to go and see what are the quotations for each day of the year. Um, it's probably not quite the inspirational um, nature of these sorts of calendars now, but I would imagine fascinatingly interesting. The other things in the collections that are connected with Moore um, can be some of the most fascinating ones is these ephemeral items. So ephemera is the name that we give in a library to the kind of things that were meant to be thrown away. So precisely because they weren't supposed to last, um, invitations, tickets, posters, programs, playbills, this kind of material is always, there's something um, something particularly uplifting about it. It's a kind of brand saved from the burning that has survived through the decades, but also because they give such extraordinary texture to a period. So very often when we look back, it's more of this type of material that we long to have in our hand. And it really 
gives this sense of a, of a human chain, that someone held this advertisement, this invitation in their hand, that it was passed to another person, that it was catalogued in the National Library. So from the intention of the writer to produce the lecture all the way to this point now where we have digitized it and show it to you, I feel it gives us this sense of a continuity and um, taking us back. And the specificity of something like this, the way it situates more in a very particular moment at a very particular place and assigns him a value um, is, is, I think, one of the most interesting things. What I would say is it can be um, a dangerous enterprise. So when you go to our catalogue and you start looking for this material, it's not on a day, I think, where you have a lot of other engagements because what you will find yourself is drawn in and thinking, oh, that's interesting, and oh, wait, and maybe can I see it? Is there a catalogue for the RHA that year, and can I check that out? Um, so it's a, an endlessly diverting, but um, perhaps not ideal um, enterprise, as I said, if you've got a lot else going on. The other item um, that I wanted to pick out is something that fewer people, I'm always surprised that fewer people know about this source than I would expect. So in the 1950s and 1960s, the indefatigable, astoundingly energetic director of the National Library, Richard J. Hayes, embarked on a massive enterprise. And he embarked on the kind of massive enterprise that I suppose only somebody who has a day job during the Second World War and then breaks codes for Irish military in the evening could be expected to undertake. And Hayes had the vision, in effect, uh, the kind of completeness, the kind of record of completeness that we have advanced on in a digital internet age. He had the vision of bringing together all of the manuscript sources related to Ireland. Um, and he sent out and organized catalog data from all over Europe, particularly, of all the manuscripts related to the island of Ireland. And he turned them into these absolutely enormous series of green volumes, um, manuscript sources for the history of Irish civilization. And when he had done that, he moved on to indexing a whole series of Irish periodicals. So all of the articles and the poems and the little incidental pieces in a whole series of Irish periodicals up to the 1970s are indexed in the periodical sources for Irish civilization. And both the manuscript and periodical sources have subsequently been digitized, as you can see here, and are available online. The periodical sources in particular are often an incredibly rich resource for someone like Moore, who was written about a huge amount during his own lifetime. So the Irish Book Lover or literary magazines of the period, lots of book reviews, lots of critiques, exactly as they are emerging, are contained in the periodical sources. And as I said, it's often one of the sources that people are less familiar with, but it can be an incredibly interesting and um, an enjoyable way of engaging with um, any writer, but Moore has an enormous amount of material about him in those Irish periodicals. So I think that would be another source that I would point to in, in terms of the collections. 
I'm very mindful of the time and there is such an array of, of more related material in the National Library that all you can do is, is touch on the, the surface of it. Um, but what I would say is almost all of it is listed in our catalogue. So on the day when you don't have appointments or you don't care about keeping them, um, I would direct you to it to have a look. And of course, everybody is always welcome, as Moore was himself, to come into the National Library and consult it. Thank you. Um, why don't we hold questions until these three papers have been done and then we can have free and open discussion. Um, so I believe second we have Robert O'Byrne um, who's going to talk to us today about Moore Hall. Thank you very, thank you so much. Uh, this is Moore Hall. Uh, which was the family home of the Moore family from the 1790s onwards uh, for 140-odd years. Uh, there had actually been an earlier house called Ashbrook, elsewhere in County Mayo. Uh, it's about, well, it lay about 30 kilometres north of Moore Hall. Uh, the family were buried uh, nearby. Um, it dates from the early 18th century, but there are scant remains of that now left. The um, location of the present Moore Hall, of course, you can't see because I didn't put the name in large enough. Um, but let me see. There's, there's no pointy thing on this, is there, Simon? But don't worry, I'll tell you what. Clamber, clamber. Uh, and uh, where is it? Even I can't. There it is, Moore Hall. In, in type far too small for any of you to see. My apologies. I should have put it in much bigger. Anyway, Moore Hall is located there. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> it's on a wonderful site overlooking Loch Cara, uh, and it's built on raised ground, which is called Mucklune Hill, with uh, extraordinary views across Loch Cara below, and then the prospect of Ballinrobe spires uh, in the far distance. Uh, according to George Moore, uh, as told to him by his brother Morris, who was probably a more reliable source very often than GM was, um, their ancestor, the original George Moore, had come back, as you know, from Spain, uh, returned to his uh, native island with uh, £250,000 and looked around then to buy an estate, settling on this site. Um, after the house had been built, the original George Moore apparently would regularly sit on the steps gazing at the view and saying, I have travelled far, but have seen nothing as beautiful as Loch Cara. So here is a, uh, a print dating from the 1830s, late 1830s, and you can see the house there set up on the Mucklune Hill, looking down, wonderful open landscape, down towards Loch Cara, uh, the view, and then, as I say, the distant view in the far distance, looking over towards Ballin Robe. Uh, Moore Hall in its prime, it stood at the centre of an estate running some 12,500 acres, and um, the uh, exterior of the building, uh, there's another, that's actually a photograph from the late 1930s, 20th century. Again, you can see the house set up on McLoone Hill there. So here's the house um, as it was in the late 19th, early 20th century. Uh, it's fronted in cut limestone. Uh, it's of three storeys over basement. And the facade, as you can see, is centred on a single bay break front with a portico, a Doric portico, and a Venetian window, uh, which actually has a balcony around it, on the first floor. 
and this wonderful flight of steps, even larger than any up to a house here in St. Stephen's Green, uh, leading up to that um, entrance. Um, however, what we see in the picture isn't quite the house as it was originally built. Um, in Hail and Farewell, Moore says that his father had made a number of alterations to the building, including plate glass windows, which uh, Moore, as a good aesthete like myself, disliked intensely. So you can see the ground floor has large plate glass windows inserted. The upper floors still retain uh, their earlier and original sash windows. Um, the other change that was made to it was raising the height of the roof, which Moore's father had also done. Uh, again, Moore writes, the old roof was 15 feet lower and the slates that covered it were small green Irish slates like tiles mortared together. Um, Moore himself, as I'm sure you know, had a very ambivalent attitude towards his family home. But ultimately, one feels he didn't terribly care for it. Of course, he didn't spend a lot of time there. Um, he said, uh, the steps were the only part of architecture that I ever liked. Moore Hall not being to my early taste, which was for brick, and perhaps it still is, for houses that have been added to by different generations, rather than for grey square blocks with pillared balconies. However, this is all in Hail and Farewell. A few lines later, he rather softens his attitude towards the building, commenting, but I've always liked the imposing flights of steps, the iron railings, the pillared balcony and the hall with its Adam ceiling, and I should have liked the rooms on either side better if they had not been decorated in accordance with Victorian taste. So who was the architect of this uh, building? Here's another view of it with a better idea of the facade and that, that wonderful Venetian window on the first floor. You could, as you can see, you could step out of it onto a balcony. Um, so who was the architect? Well, the, the, we don't know for certain, but the consensus generally is that it was a man called John Roberts uh, based in Waterford. He'd been born in that city in 1712 and after a period of training in London he based himself there for the rest of his career and enjoyed a highly successful time of it. In May 1775 the Bishop of Waterford, Richard Chenevix, had described John Roberts as an architect whose integrity, skill and experience I have long been acquainted with. He having finished the Episcopal House, that is the uh, Bishop's Palace in Waterford, and built two houses for me. He is well known to the Archbishop of Cashel, to Lord Tyrone, whose fine offices he built, and the chief gentleman of this county, having been employed by most of them in considerable buildings and to their entire satisfaction. And he has now undertaken the rebuilding of the Cathedral of Waterford. Some of you may know the wonderful cathedral, uh, Church of Ireland Cathedral in Waterford. Here is a view of its, in, of its interior. It's the, certainly the finest um, 18th century uh, Church of Ireland uh, building in Ireland, Church of Ireland place of worship in Ireland. Wonderful classical building there in the centre. What's particularly interesting, this is Christ Church, and it dates from 1774. Curiously enough, um, in 1792, John Roberts was then commissioned to design the Roman Catholic Cathedral, Holy Trinity, which is also in the middle of Waterford City. It's the oldest Roman Catholic cathedral still in use today. Uh, and of course, it's several decades before um, the repeal of the penal laws, which is particularly interesting because of the su substance of the building. And you can see the links between, this is the Church of Ireland Cathedral. Here is the Roman Catholic Cathedral in Waterford City. Both of them within easy walking distance. And, and certainly if you're there, well worth a visit uh, to see them both. This was built in 1792, the same year as Moore Hall, the work at Moore Hall started. Uh, in that letter from Richard Chenevix, the Bishop of, of Waterford, he mentioned the officers for Lord Tyrone. These were at Curramore 
uh, some of you may know Carmore, it's the home to the Dola Pair Beresfords, the um, now Marquises of Waterford, then the Earls of Tyrone. So this is this is Carmore. It's based at the very centre of that building. It's actually originally a, a 15th century tower house that was then added to. The officers that uh, are referred to in Chenevix's le letter are the two wings that, uh, that form this extraordinary forecourt that runs down. You get a better sense of them here just beginning on either side there of the main block. And these are supposed to have been designed by John Roberts as well. Another building in the same county, this is Belmont, now known as Capaquin House. Um, sadly, again, was a house that was burnt down uh, almost exactly the same time, within days of uh, Moore Hall. It was burnt down in 1923. Uh, it's now known as Capaquin House. It actually was rebuilt. So this is Capaquin House today, still, um, still home uh, to the Keane family, as it was at the time. Uh, again, one of the reasons why this house was burnt down in 1923 was because Sir John Keane was a senator, as indeed was Colonel Morris Moore. So you can see the links there. But the most obvious link in terms of architecture is a house much closer uh, to Moore Hall on the west coast, and that's a building called Tyrone House, which was built uh, for in the late 1770s for the St. George family, originally Frenchers, and for the sake of an inheritance, they changed their name to St. George. And the house is very, very similar architecturally to, uh, to Moore Hall. It actually was burnt down uh, sometime earlier in 1920. Tyrone overlooks Galway Bay, just as uh, Moore Hall overlooks Loch Cara. And it was the inspiration for Somerville and Ross's The Big House of Inver, published in 1925, which some of you, I'm sure, have read. Um, of course, by that stage, uh, uh, Violet uh, Martin had long since been dead, but you'll know, of course, that um, Edith Somville continued to have seances and check every line, every sentence uh, with Violet to make sure that, uh, that she was happy with them, and that she continued to insist that the, bu the books be published under the joint names of Somerville and Ross. And there's a particular link here because uh, Violet Martin in 1910 had visited the house uh, with a friend of hers and described it as a great square cut stone house of three stories with an area perfectly empty by that stage the St George's had largely abandoned the house and with such ceilings architraves teak doors and chimney pieces as one sees in old houses in Dublin much much earlier not long after the house was built um, indeed uh, it had also been visited by the wonderful uh, Reverend Daniel Beaufort a great hero of mine, if you know the Revel Daniel Beaufort, am a, uh, rector of Navan, amateur architect, uh, map maker, and so on and so forth. Um, anyway, he visited the house when he was travelling around um, Ireland, um, and he described it uh, in uh, 1770, uh, actually, sorry, 1790, as large and new, but very bleak and too high. Um, you'll see the extraordinary similarities, as I say, with uh, this is it today, by the way. It was burnt, as I say, in 1920. So this is the, this is the facade of Moore Hall, and this is the facade of Tyrone House. You can see the same uh, single break front, the Venetian window on the first floor, flight of steps, now heavily grassed over, up to the front door, and so on and so forth. You can see extraordinary similarities in the architecture between the two buildings. Now, of course, one has to ask, why would a man like John Roberts, with an incredibly successful uh, architectural practice on the East Coast be doing uh, over on the West Coast, designing a, just two country houses, even though they're very alike and they have similarities with much of his other work. The, the reason appears to be the fact that he had, uh, he and his wife had no less than 24 children. One feels awfully sorry for his poor wife. Um, one of whom became a, a Church of Ireland clergyman, also named John Roberts, 
and his parish was at Ballymacquad in County Galway, about halfway between Tyrone House and Moore Hall. Um, and therefore, one presumes his father would have visited him in the west of Ireland and received the commissions to design um, these two houses. By the way, uh, just as an incidental, um, the Reverend John Roberts was the grandfather of Field Marshal Earl Roberts, the great soldier who uh, died at the start of the First World War. So uh, what was Moore Hall like inside? We, as always, with old houses that have been destroyed, we have very few, we have no photographs in this instance of the interior. It, most houses were photographed from the exterior, but of course, early cameras weren't very good at catching uh, the details of a room in the interior because of light and so forth. So we don't have any photographs of what the interior of Moore Hall looked like. We have a very good description provided, thankfully, by this woman. This is Mariah Edgeworth, the wonderful Mariah Edgeworth who went and spent several days in Moore Hall in September 1836. The previous uh, year, she had welcomed uh, the Moors of the time uh, to her house, and she's, she is fa simultaneously sort of fascinated and appalled and ever so slightly addicted to Mrs Moore, who uh, was a granddaughter of the first Earl of Altamont, who obviously they lived, obviously, at... Uh, uh, at, uh, at further else, um, at, I'm trying to remember the name of the register, Westport, Westport House. Um, she described uh, Mrs. Moore as very clever and very coarse and strong, more than vulgar, if I may be allowed to make a distinction. Vulgar is common, and there is nothing common about her. She's very entertaining, exhaustingly entertaining to me, for I listen until I'm ready to drop. Now, this is while the Moors were staying with her, and nevertheless, she was prepared to make the journey all the way west to stay with them for a few days the following September, as I say, in Moore Hall. She'd previously been with the Martins um, of Ballina Hinch in Connemara. Some of you may know Ballina Hinch in Connemara, a rather smart hotel. But the, the Martins, who were the great, so to speak, princes of that area, but they lived in a rather rackety way. And I think um, Mariah was expecting something similar when she went to Moore Hall, uh, something along the lines of the... Um, eponymous Castle Rackrent from her famous 1800 novel of the same name. So she arrives there and she wrote back home, to my astonishment, I found Moore Hall, which I had fancied would be a dilapidated, wild kind of hand-to-mouth house. In fact, a most luxurious, excellent house, beautifully furnished in the best taste with all the comforts and luxuries of life, dining room, bedrooms, library, drawing room. The library especially is a most livable and elegant uh, a most livable and elegant, can I read my own writing, literary one, papered with a sort of Gothic paper representing colonnades of pillars and fretwork arches above, and all manner of tables and armchairs and low and high backs, bookcases with network doors opening easily, none higher than you can reach, and by the way, Mariah Edgeworth was a very small woman, um, books well chosen all around two rooms for this library opened into a study of Mr. Moore's with a snuggery and charming writing desk for himself. The summer drawing room, papered with a green trellis, this is the house as it is today, you can just imagine, this, this is the summer drawing room, papered with a green trellis paper, the prettiest I ever saw. Large windows to the ground open upon a balcony from which you see a clear sparkling lake below, wooded and islanded, and with a sort of spoon-shaped cape, the house and plantations are on a peninsula. Mariah Edgeworth, very enthusiastic about her time at Moore Hall, 
then goes on to say, our bodily fare all the time was excellent. Breakfast, lunch and dinners excellently served and neither too much nor too little. Silver dishes and china, the servants all good and attentive and well-dressed. All attendants, female and male, well-appointed and well-attending. Her own maid had lived with her 23 years, her housemaid 14, others proportionately. This tells well for both master and mistress and uh, rather counters Mariah Edgeworth's earlier opinion of Mrs. Moore as a large, vulgar woman. Um, so such then was Moore Hall in the 1830s, in that rather halcyon period prior to the Great Famine, prior to the onset of the land wars, and so on and so forth, um, and to the years that ultimately led to its destruction. We know George Moore felt the house had no future, as he wrote to his brother Morris in 1909, the property won't last out even my lifetime, that is to say, if I live a long while, and there will be nothing, I'm afraid, for your children. You always put on the philosophical air when I speak of the probable future and say the future is hidden from us, but the future of landlords isn't in the least hidden from us, as indeed it wasn't. Although, as we knew, uh, when the end arrived, it was rather gratuitously harsh. Uh, Colonel Morris Moore, as I said, was a senator, and the anti-treaty uh, party were very keen to burn as many senators' properties as possible. So on February the 1st, 1923, a local group of men arrived at Moore Hall in the middle of the night. They ordered, in the usual fashion, they ordered the steward to hand over the keys. They moved bales of straw into the house and poured fuel over these, and then set the whole place alight. Many years later, Benedict Kiley wrote in the Irish Times that he knew someone who'd been present when Moore Hall was looted and burnt and who could list various houses in the area containing furniture and other items from the property. This is by no means um, unusual. There are lots of other examples of that thing happening. So ever since, Moore Hall has stood uh, empty uh, uh, despite the uh, initial hopes of Colonel Morris Moore that it might be rebuilt. It wasn't. Uh, the land, uh, the surrounding land was eventually uh, taken over by Quiltshire. This is a photograph from the 1960s taken by the late Paddy Rossmore, showing the house still set in this open landscape. Uh, but um, Quiltshire, with all its usual sensitivity, decided to plant trees all around the house. So now when you approach it, you're surrounded by this forestry. Um, so the whole purpose of the house, which should be set on this high ground, looking down towards the water, no longer exists. If you're standing on the steps, as the original builder did, you, would, you look at just a, a screen of trees instead. Um, in January uh, 2018, the house was bought by Mayo County Council with 80 acres of surrounding land, and I know they have since at least restored the wall garden. At the time, the uh, authority announced its plans to develop the estate as a nationally important nature reserve and tourism attraction, with its chief executive announcing that this would ensure that the natural, built, and cultural heritage of Moore Hall is protected, yet developed, and managed in a sustainable manner for current and future generations. So I think we must wait and see, but having said Ave to Moore Hall, we can hope not, it won't be Vale also. Thank you very much. Um, this is very enjoyable. Um, I'm looking forward to Maeve Cassidy's talk now about Morris Dublin, 1901 to 1911. Three great talks. 
Um, thank you, yes, uh, as is always the privilege of the person who goes last, I might be able to speak to a few things that have already been mentioned. Um, so thank you very much uh, for asking me along this afternoon to speak a little bit about Moore's Dublin. And I'm a histo historian, not a literary expert, so I'll give a little bit more context, if that's all right, um, to Moore during the period when he lived in United Place, as has already been mentioned, between 1901 and 1911. Um, it was a time of huge change in Irish society, in its culture and its politics, and not least for the city itself, um, which was undergoing a massive shift in its own kind of cultural milieu. Uh, this afternoon, I'll talk a little bit about the cultural revival and the important friendships and collaborations with leading figures in cultural life that Moore had, and then some of the more wider political and social changes that were happening in uh, Dublin during this period. And I'll be using the photographs and the manuscripts from the National Library of Ireland. Um, I always bring a book with me, uh, having worked uh, working in a library. So uh, the one I have with me today is uh, Roy Foster's Vivid Faces, an amazing um, recounting of a generation of what Foster called vivid faces and he uses a lot of the material from the library um, and this generation was one which Moore entered into when it was sort of at its peak, its zenith of influence on Irish society and the title itself comes from a poem of course uh, by Yeats and um, in it Yeats um, was Easter 1916 was the poem itself and Yeats wrote that um, I have met them at close of day, coming with vivid faces from counter or desk among grey 18th century houses. Um, in it, in Easter 1916, the poem somewhat ambivalently celebrates the rebels who seized the GPO and proclaimed an Irish Republic. But after this long day's work in a shop or an office, you might expect the people of this vivid faces generation um, to be as grey looking as the houses around them. But as Foster shows in his book, um, that uh, this rising generation that Moore was a part of and really lived through uh, was really lit up by things like a Republican ardour, by feminism, by religious intensity, and all of these things can be found in Moore's own works and impacted his life when he was living here. This was a generation that was founded on a cultural nationalism that originated in the cultural revival of the 1880s. A movement which when Moore entered into, as I said, was sort of at its peak of influence in Ireland. Moore's Dublin was one of vivid faces. He was friends, neighbours and collaborators with many of its leading figures. So when Moore came to Dublin in 1901, it was partly because of his loathing for the South African Boer War, but also because of this um, kind of burgeoning Irish literary renaissance that was spearheaded by people like his friend, William Butler Yeats. As early as 1897, Yeats, during a stay at Lady Gregory's home in Cool Park in Galway, uh, discussed the foundation of a Celtic theatre with people like Edward Martin and Moore as well. These discussions led to the foundation of the Irish Literary Theatre in 1898, which initially excelled in productions of what were called peasant plays. And one of the greatest dramatists of this movement was, of course, John Millington Singh, who wrote plays of great beauty and power in quite a stylized peasant dialect. Um, like Moore, to whom storytelling was a very important theme and influence in his own work, 
Singh, Yeats and Gregory were all inspired by dialects across the Irish country. Throughout the 1890s and the 1900s, Lady Gregory and Yeats undertook a kind of an oral history project to collect Irish folk tales across Sligo in particular and also all across the west of Ireland in both Irish and English. Uh, this is a notebook from the Yeats collection. Um, it's from the 1890s and it focuses on stories which Yeats and Lady, um, uh, Lady Gregory collected. And in this instance, it's uh, from a woman called Mary Battle, who was the housekeeper of Yeats's uncle, George Pelexon, in Sligo. Uh, Mary Battle was meant to have been a great narrator of legends and she was alleged to have had the gift of second sight. In this piece, uh, Mary Battle describes a vision of a giant warrior woman um, whom she saw near Knocknery in County Sligo. And Catherine mentioned um, some of George Moore's handwriting being difficult to read, but I think uh, Yeats always takes the biscuit here a little bit more so than anyone else. Um, of course, Edward Martin. Uh, this is a wonderful sketch from, the, from John Butler Yeats, who was W.B. Yeats's father. Edward Martin, um, Moore's cousin, had encouraged him to come to Dublin. And Martin himself was another key figure in this very close-knit circle of the Irish literary theatre world. He himself was support, reportedly pivotal in introducing W.B. Yeats to Lady Gregory um, in 1896. And the three together founded the Irish literary theatre. Martin did contribute um, some plays to uh, this early programme, but one of his main um, impacts really was actually covering the costs of the company's first three seasons. And this was really crucial in establishing this new literary company and in helping towards the future of the Irish National Theatre, the Abbey Theatre, founded in 1904. Um, Edward Martin later parted ways with Yeats and Lady Gregory, uh, something he said he later regretted, but did remain on warm terms with Lady Gregory till the end of his life. Uh, one of the earliest popular successes for this new theatre was a play co-written between Yeats and here's pictured Lady Gregory. Um, it was a play called Kathleen Nahulhan. It's the second one, uh, third one down after on Balia Strand there. Uh, interestingly, it was co-written, but on this poster for the Irish National Theatre, uh, it is solely attributed to W.B. Yeats. Uh, the play was another one of these kind of peasant-focused uh, settings and in which Kathleen de Houlihan, uh, there's a great photograph here of one of those early productions, Maud Gone, another of these literary kind of greats in, in this uh, cultural revival circle. She's playing Kathleen. She's standing on uh, the far right. And in it, Kathleen de Houlihan, where Maud Gone, uh, the great beauty at the time, she's dressed up in what is described as a withered, haggard old crone. And um, in the play, Kathleen is quite an, an unsubtle metaphor for the Irish nation. Uh, in it, she tries to encourage the young men in the play, in the, in the house, the front um, room in particular, to try and go and fight for her, to reclaim her land that has been taken from her. So again, a very not very subtle metaphor for our, uh, the uh, English occupation of Ireland. And um, at the end of the play, one young man does go away with her and she is transformed then into a young and beautiful woman. 
the play itself, uh, Yeats later wrote on kind of reflection. Um, he said that, did that play of mine send out certain men the English shot? That's from a 1938 poem, Man and the Echo. And in it, he's kind of speculating whether the play Kathleen Nehulahan from those early days in the Abbey Theatre was one of the driving forces behind the Easter Rising of 1916. Um, Yeats and Lady Gregory were also very passionate about the Irish language, though it was only Lady Gregory who uh, dedicated a lot of time to learning and becoming fluent in the Irish language, and she was the one that did the interviews, Oskelga, to people to collect the folk tales and myths of people who spoke Irish in the west of Ireland. Um, Douglas Hyde has, of course, already been mentioned, and he was hugely involved in um, the Irish aspect, the Irish language aspect of the cultural revival that was, as I said, really reaching its peak and zenith in the early 1900s when Moore was living here. Um, the the space of this area around Stevens Green, uh, Dawson Street, the National Library, also been mentioned so close to Eli Place, where the um, where Moore was living for that decade, and very close to the headquarters of the Gaelic League or the Conrading Ale. And um, a play uh, which Hyde and uh, Moore collaborated on together, um, has, as has already been mentioned by Mary, The Tinker and the Fairy, or On Tinker, August on Tishog, um, was staged in Moore's, uh, in the garden opposite Moore's home in May of 1902. Hyde played the Tinker and uh, Sinead Lee Flanagan, um, who played the fairy. And sorry, it's a little bit uh, small again, but uh, you'll, it's number uh, 14 is Sinead's um, number here. And she was um, very involved in the Cunning Ale. And this is, you could vote for her to be elected to the executive committee of the Conra. So there's all these different links here. And Sinead um, went on and married uh, Eamon de Valera, became Sinead de Valera in 1910. So there's all these different connections. It was a small world in Dublin, in the kind of Dublin 2 area where many people um, joined together. Uh, focusing a little bit then on Eli Place as a space, as kind of a, a hub of um, uh, bringing people together. Here's a, an image from the 1960s this time from the library's collections. And uh, it's obviously the front door of George Moore's house at number four, Eli Place. The street itself was an amazing hub of activity. Uh, one of uh, Moore's neighbours who would have lived opposite to him was Oliver St. John Gogarty. Um, he lived on the part, on part of what is some of now the Royal Hibernian Academy, and he moved there in 1908. Um, Gogarty became quite known for his flamboyant theatrics in the operating room, and this included off-the-cuff kind of witticisms while he was operating on people, apparently, and even uh, flinging a recently removed larynxes at the audience in the viewing gallery, which just to me sounds bizarre. But uh, Gogarty, um, he maintained a consulting room at his home in Eli Place, opposite to where um, George Moore was living. And this attracted uh, a lot of wealthy clients to Gogarty's home, but also he attended to lesser well-off people for free. So a really kind of eclectic mix of people that would have been passing uh, by George Moore's home. 
throughout the time that he was living here. Uh, right beside Moore was a uh, number three Eli Place. And this was the residence uh, from around the 1890s of a couple, Anne and Frederick John Dick. And it became the meeting place of, and the headquarters in Ireland of the Theosophical Society, uh, an organisation, you might call it an occult group, but it really uh, brought together a number of different uh, views of world religions, had been uh, linked to a woman called Madame Blavatsky. Um, and it was uh, really a hub here for the Theosophical Society at number three, Eli Place, right beside uh, George Moore. Um, George Russell, or AE, who's already been mentioned, as well as people like William Butler Yeats, were all committed theosophists. That's actually sorry, a, a lovely sketch of Gogarty. And then here on the right-hand side is another great quote from Yeats. I'll read some of it, but not all, from his autobiography in 1922. And he talks about the scene of the theosophists. Uh, he says, The one house where nobody thought or talked politics was a house in Eli Place, where a number of young men lived together and for want of a better name were called theosophists. Besides the residence members, other members dropped in and out during the day and the reading room was a place of much discussion about philosophy and about the arts. The house has been taken in the name of the engineer of the Board of Works, a black bearded young man, and all accepted him as a host. However, sometimes the conversation, especially when I was there, as he mentions, um, became too ghostly for the nerves of his young and delicate wife and he would be made very angry. So I think there's a great kind of capturing there, as um, Moore does in um, Hail and Farewell, of kind of the atmosphere of what Eli Place was like at the time. Um, in another aspect of Moore's writings, he was very interested in international movements like labour and feminism. Again, his time in Dublin provided for further opportunities for him to mingle and interact with key figures in these movements in Ireland. And I'm delighted actually that Catherine mentioned this earlier because um, I'm going to talk a little bit more about the painter in, uh, who has been sketched by William Orpen, Sarah Cecilia Harrison. Really, really interesting woman. Uh, this sketch is from 1907, as, as Catherine mentioned. It's done by William Orpen uh, in a letter to Moore. And William Orpen, um, in another link, was a, a, a teacher and a mentor to Grace Gifford when she was a student in um, the Dublin Metropolitan School of Art on Kildare Street. So it's all, everyone's linked in a different way here. Um, but Sarah Cecilia Harrison, the image I have on the right is actually courtesy of the Hugh Lane Gallery. It's a self-portrait, which she did of herself. And she was a very prominent Dublin-based artist, but she was also one of the first generation of women that benefited hugely from legislative reform on women's rights to vote, their right to be represented, but also access to education. And this happened in the late 1800s and early 1900s in Ireland and all across the United Kingdom. And for about 30 years or so, Sarah Cecilia Harrison was part herself of very many important social reforms for um, the working classes, for the labour movement, as I mentioned, and women's rights in Ireland. And in 1912, the year just after Moore left Dublin, she was the first woman elected to Dublin City Council. 
Um, Moore's decade in Dublin was itself a time in which the women's suffrage movement, mostly associated with more kind of middle and upper class women in the 19th, in the 19th century, became more linked with labour and the reform for workers. Uh, here's again another image from the library's collections. Uh, at the very front in the centre seated is Delia Larkin, and Delia Larkin, one of the key founders of this organisation, the Irish Women's Workers' Union, that was established in 1911. Women's rights more generally um, were a very hotly debated subject during Moore's decade in Dublin. Uh, in 1908, more radical suffragettes, as they were called, like this woman Hannah Sheehy Skeffington on the left, established groups like the Irish Women's Franchise League uh, because they'd become disillusioned with the more moderate suffrage groups of the older generation. So this is another of those kind of vivid faces generations that Roy Foster refers to. Uh, these women often resorted to militant protests to raise awareness for the suffrage cause, and they even attacked prominent buildings across Dublin city centre, including Dublin Castle. This is um, a cartoon from Dublin City Council Library Archives, and it's making fun of the women who attacked Dublin City Castle. With um, they smashed the windows, and it's kind of making fun of their attempts to mount the castle with an umbrella and a ladder. Um, and as I said, they uh, mounted these more militant activities. Many of them were arrested, including Hannah Sheehy Skeffington. And whilst they were in prison, they used the tactic of going on hunger strike to gain political stasis. Uh, this method was used very effectively by the Irish revolutionaries in the War of Independence a decade later. So what I'm trying to show you and to try to get at is that Irish society was becoming increasingly polarised with huge disparities opening up between the middle and upper classes and the working classes through this early 1900 period. The so-called sort of slums of Dublin, where families lived in tenement houses like this one pictured here on uh, Michael's Lane, were some of the worst in all of Europe. And unfortunately, Dublin City had one of the highest infancy mortality rates in Europe at the time. The labour movement here, um, uh, Big Jim Larkin is being arrested after uh, uh, giving a speech. Um, were very agitated about this, and people like Sarah Cecilia Harrison, uh, Delia Larkin, James Larkin, were all involved as activists and protesters here. And in particular, a lot of this movement led to the Dublin lockout of 1913, when around 20,000 workers were locked out of their work uh, for, um, for months and months at a time because they had unionised in the 1900s for better pay and for better working conditions. So Moore's Dublin was not only becoming more divergent in terms of social classes, but Irish politics itself was becoming much more polarised and large sections of society were even becoming militarised in this early 1900 period. The cultural nationalist movement it had its own kind of military group called Nafina Éireann, um, the, the Fianna of Ireland, and this was an Irish nationalist youth organisation, kind of like the Boy Scouts, and it was founded by Countess Markovich in 1909, and Bulmer Hobson was another integral uh, figure in the Fianna Heron. 
Its members, all young boys, were involved in setting up another militant organisation, the Irish Volunteers, and they also had a circle uh, within the Irish Republican Brotherhood, one of those key groups that helped organise the Easter Rising in 1916. So it's all kind of leading to this militarisation of society. Moore's own childhood and his early years were, of course, impacted by another militarisation of society during the Land League reforms and the Land Wars under people like Charles Stuart Parnell, who was the leader of the Irish Parliamentary Party, often known as the Home Rule Party. And um, when Moore was in Dublin, the Home Rule Party had a sort of reinvigoration under people like a new leader, John Redmond, after the party had been split. Um, in 1911, the year that Moore left Dublin, one of the most hotly debated subjects was the contents of the third Home Rule Bill, and that's going to be put to Parliament in 1912. Here's um, a big kind of sort of protest slash mass demonstration of uh, Home Rule and what people wanted to happen in Ireland in 1912. Um, Moore left Dublin in 1911 on what many people believe was the cusp of what could have been a potential civil war over Home Rule and the whole issue of it actually being brought into Ireland. In 1913, another militant organisation, the Ulster Volunteer Force was founded. This was led by Edward Carson, and they wanted to forcefully prevent the implementation of Home Rule, or what uh, was called Rome Rule, because there was often a very strong Catholic-Protestant divide between the two groups. This is a postcard, again from the library's collections, depicting what might happen to Belfast if Rome rule was to be brought in. Um, at the very centre, there's a statue to Redmond. You can see Belfast City Hall in ruins. Um, the city centre has been given over to agricultural produce. So people really didn't want Home rule to be brought in. This was all happening as Moore was leaving the late 1910s as um, Home Rule was actually introduced and, well not fully introduced, but passed through Parliament in 1914. And a lot of people say if the First World War hadn't broke out in that year, um, a civil war may have actually come to Ireland over the Home Rule issue, over these uh, two opposing sides who were increasingly like gaining in numbers um, over uh, this, this very contentious issue. Um, so, as I said, if uh, the First World War had not happened, which postponed the Home Rule Bill being brought in, people do believe a civil war might have happened. And uh, just to include a little note on um, Hail and Farewell, which I, I think Moore brought a little mini civil war into his own circle with some of the uh, comments he made about people. But um, just to say that this was a really a time of uh, polarisation of society. Moore would have witnessed a huge amount of this and he sort of not left just in time, but just as kind of that cultural revival was turning into a much more militant nationalist movement, uh, it was the time when Moore exited from Dublin. So thank you very much.
We're supposed to take a break at three. That gives us just 10 minutes. But the, um, can I use my privilege as chair to poke in a question? The, um, um, it's actually for Catherine, I suppose. It, it, the special collections reading room, mm. that used to be the Kildare Street Club, right? That's mm -hmm. right. So in those lines that you quote about the vivid faces I had met with closed day and thought of a jibe I make made to a companion at the club, he's walking down the street and turning into the Kildare Street mm -hmm. Club mm -hmm. and going upstairs and talking about McDonough or Pierce these guys, they think they're revolutionaries. <laughs> you know, some <coughs> joke, basically, right? And I think Martin was living across the street. In, he had a, a flat in the buildings across the street. And he would be giving uh, singing lessons to people that were in the Palestrina choir, or not lessons. He'd be listening to them. Mm. Be hosting. Mm. Um, hosting. He'd be oh, hosting uh, yeah. events for the singers. Yeah. And Moore used to go over there and whistle uh, <laughs> a little area from a Wagner opera down yeah. below and try and get Martin to come to the window and come down and go across the street and up into the Kildare Street Club. Mm. Um, but I, I'm told that that club is moving down, uh, that the special collections are going back downstairs. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So um, for any of you who can't picture it, it's the, the building at the bottom of Kildare Street, which is beside the Alliance Française. And on the pedestals, on the columns outside, there's little illustrations of monkeys playing billiards. And um, so if you haven't seen them, do, do have a look the next time you're walking down Kildare Street, which are representative of the activities mm. taking place mm -hmm. in the mm. Gentlemen's Club. And... So you have, um, you have a facade with these big, huge, impressive windows. It was the dining room, I think, of the Kildare Street Club on the ground floor. Yeah. And this very narrow entrance with quite a number of steps up. So the visuals of it are fascinating. You can see here this representation of privilege, but it has this extremely narrow, elitist entrance. Um, so I like to think that that's being democratised now. So where our special collections, our manuscripts reading room is currently on the second floor, it's now going to come down to that ground floor. So mm -hmm. in sharp contradistinction to how it would have been in Moore's day, anybody can come in having, <laughs> <laughs> having seen something that they like the look of. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We don't have to take the lift anymore. No, exactly, exactly. And um, questions? For Mary? Remarks. Mm. Um, I loved all of this, and it, it fills out so many uh, pictures of, of Moore Hall and its roots and, and the riches of the, the National Library. But uh, I thought it would be important to add, since we're in grants that are affiliated to UCD, that Margaret Gough is secretary, was actually the aunt of Declan Kybert. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, I mean it, it is extraordinary, so, isn't these networks? Circles go around yeah. these generations. <laughs> more questions? <clears throat> or, or even more questions. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
brag in as well about Edward Martin, uh, that Martin not alone funded the, the theatre, but he was a founder of Cumberland Aguilar and founded it and gave loads mm. of money. And he gave thousands to Westland Road Church for the Palestrina Choir. And that fund, as far as I know, still, still exists. It does, I believe, yes. Yeah. Yeah. It continues to. And uh, Martin, as I recall, uh, the other members of the Kildare Street Club tried to remove him as a member uh, because of his views, which were... Uh, very restrictive <laughs> on what kind of music was to be... No, sold. very restrictive on his political views. Uh -huh. And so as oh, a result yeah. of that, they tried to remove him, but he actually, as I recall, fought back and remained a member and took pleasure in going in there because, oh, yeah. because, of the, because he met with such hostility from the rest of the club membership. Mm -hmm. yeah. So he, he, he could be as provocative as Moore himself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He was stubborn old fellow. Yeah. Yeah. And just to add into that, uh, I'm just referring back to Maeve's sketch of life in Dublin at that time. I mean, Martin's... Uh, Martin's patronage and founding of the Palestrina Choir was predicated on the condition that no girl or woman could sing in the choir. <laughs> but what he didn't anticipate was that years later, many fine women musicians would conduct it as, as a woman does this present day. And, and that's, that's, that's referenced, of course, in Joyce's great masterpiece, The Dead, because um, Aunt Kate is complaining about the fact that the paper legislation um, has meant that uh, women are no longer welcome to sing in church. And I remember a few years ago, a, a colleague and musicologist friend of mine put it with tremendous uh, pithy concision. He said, the result of motu proprio, this papal legislation was that the chant was in and the ladies were out. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, the, every once in a while there's a discussion in, um, Mayo in Castle Bar about um, some sort of restoration of Moor Hall. Mm. Uh, when you have seen the trees growing up in the middle of it, does it seem possible to you that... Anywhere can be restored, uh, in the sense that uh, there are two country houses in Ireland which were both shells with trees growing up and one of them has been completely restored in recent years, relatively close to where I live. Another one in County Cork is being restored at the moment. On the other hand, in both cases, they're being restored by men with very deep pockets. Uh, so unless Mayor County Council is prepared to put an inordinate amount of money into the building, running to millions, mm -hmm. uh, and even if you do that, even if you restore the building, what do you then do with it? Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have the original contents. You don't even know. Uh, I didn't give you all the descriptive details. We have a little more. Moore himself provides us with a little more information about what the interior was like, but we don't have a great deal of knowledge of what the actual interior was like, the furnishings and so on and so forth. Um, I, I think it's better to, my instinct would be it's better to preserve the shell and secure it uh, rather than spend the money trying to restore it as the, the money's uh, especially if you want to celebrate George Moore, I think there are much better ways to, to, to spend that money. Yeah, the OP I, and I say this as somebody who loves historic buildings. Yeah. The OPW did a study of it at the time. Mm. They were pushing for um, some kind of redevelopment of the house, but 
and they came to exactly your conclusion. But they also discovered that there's a bat living in that type of bat <laughs> oh. living in that uh, house. In which case, oh, nothing will ever happen. In which case, the conversation draws to a close. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> really, because no, nobody, be, nobody beats world. the bats. <laughs> uh, we all know that. Uh, they, the bats all, always, uh, all, always win. Um, and the, the other reality is, and this happens constantly throughout the country, uh, that you, local people might have romantic notions of restoring a building or making it a visitor centre or an experience of various kinds. You have to recognise that the location of Moore Hall is not one that attracts enormous numbers of visitors. That's exactly why they want to restore it, because they, like, they have you... a notion that suddenly vast coach loads will arrive yeah. at, at, at the entrance to Moore Hall. As they have in so many other parts as they, of the country. As they have with old buildings. Yes, exactly. Let's, let us be realistic about this. You know, uh, it would give employment to someone to sit looking rather bored at a desk waiting for the visitors to arrive. But yeah. I suspect not a lot else. <laughs> I mean, there's such great fishing there. There's, it's, it's, it, actually, the land is cheap right around there, mm -hmm. as it isn't anywhere else, you know? Like... So, so you're sort of saying, come and visit us and buy an acre or two while we're about it. <laughs> come and visit us, you'll never leave. I, I mean, I, I'm just... No, 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 I, I, I entirely concur. Look, I, I think it's a, it's a wonderful uh, notion, but I also have seen over the years many historic properties or enterprises of this kind uh, set up with great deal of local enthusiasm, but one has to recognise the reality of where visitors go yeah. and what they want when they get there. Yeah. And... Uh, they tried to give it to the university at one point. Uh, you were just... <laughs> <laughs> thanks, but no thanks. Yeah. Listen, Tyrone House, which is the which is the sister house, I say. Mm. So Tyrone House has had a very complex, sad history. Again, uh, there were people passionate about its restoration. At one stage in the uh, 1960s, a man I used to know, long dead in Chicago, who was related to a descendant of the on the on the wrong side of the bed, but a descendant of the St George's. Um, paid money to buy the house and surrounding land so that it could be restored. This was via the Irish Children's Society. It transpired a few years later that the man who he'd paid the money to never owned the house or the land. Uh, and it was another farmer who looked for money as well. <laughs> so Tyrone House is, and again, Tyrone House is, is, in some ways, it's more attractive. It's on the Galway Bay, it's relatively close to Galway City and so forth, but it has gradually fallen to pieces. As I say, more hall would be better, the shell of it, to be preserved mm -hmm. as a memorial than spend any I mean, money on anything else. They blocked all the windows, but before then, I used to think it was that Moore would have been smiling because you could see uh, that young lovers had like written their names in the walls, like not one or two, but lots, suggestive that many young people from Castle Bar and elsewhere had gone into Moore Hall. We're getting more of it than Moore first, ever did. first pleasures of life were yeah. experienced there. You yeah. know. I know, I, yeah. I, I, that's true of, of many houses, I can assure you. People feel, uh, going back centuries, there's a, there's a wonderful uh, remains of a property in a place called Dramana, uh, and it has terrific 18th century uh, graffiti of the same wow. sort. Yeah. Wow. Still pre preserved in this building. Mm. Tea time. Tea time. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I think everybody has returned to the room, so it's time to begin the, the second panel, which is going to be preceded by a violin recital. Kayla Kennedy will present us with some George Moore music.
explore some of the musical connections, I maybe more starting. So I'm going to start by a very small kind of short. It's the Siegfried Alert from George Moore to Edward Martin, as mentioned by Moore in Hail and Farewell. So this is what George Moore used instead of a doorbell calling to Martin. Um, this is actually shamelessly copied by James Joyce, who put a bag of birds on my teeth into the young man when Stephen Dallas hailed him. So yeah, this is a bag of teeth.
That was lovely. Thank you. And uh, now we have Mary Pierce, who's uh, the uh, CEO of the George Moore Association for quite some time, and has made his last. Uh, and she's going to talk today on glimpses of George Moore and art. So we've just had a glimpse of some of the myriad connections of George Moore and art um, in the musical sense. And I want to talk about the visual art uh, connections, both um, in Moore's life and in his literature. Um, the visual interest and the visual art links that Moore had were all generated in the main in his Paris period in the 1870s. And when you think of the centrality of art in the life of Moore as it was, you can find innumerable portraits of him, um, many comments and articles by him on visual art, because he was the art critic for the speaker in the 1890s for several years. And he reproduced some of those articles in his book, uh, Impressions and Opinions. In addition to those essays and articles, there are several instances we find where Moore wanted to incorporate a visual element into his prose. And in that connection, we find a very perceptible French influence. He ruminated publicly, very publicly, on art, on art fashion, on trend in pictorial art, he castigated, as you might expect, what he found to be outworn and outdated. And he gave, in many cases, uh, examples of his personal preferences amongst artists, artists and their paintings. So I think we could interpret this as a move on George Moore's uh, part, and a very determined one, really, um, to breach the traditional boundaries of English visual art, English art appreciation, and art education. But also he wanted to change at the same time um, novelistic patterns and reader expectations. And through the lines of Moore's prose, you can see his hopes really for a bright new world and his complete obsession with the renewal of the visual arts. And with artistic form in every way, whether it was literature, drama, music, or painting. Um, and I think his associations with the like of Holst at the time is clear evidence of his, his wish to break away from what had become rather formulaic and stayed. So what he wanted to do was um, make all of these things change and make a new era. And that's sort of a brief summary, in a way, of George Moore as a time. And I think it illustrates pretty well that George Moore was a very interesting man. He was seen as a very interesting man by important persons in the art world. And hence the proliferation of portraits of him uh, during many decades. Now, maybe over 130 have been discovered to date, and there's a wonderful man in Chicago called Robert Becker who's discovering even more by the minute. Um, for instance, you can see Manet. Oh, somehow Jacques-Emile Blanche got a bit changed there. William Orpen moved around. Uh, John Butler Yeats. Uh, A.E., Sarah Cecilia Harrison, about whom you heard this morning. Henry Tonks, Walter Sackert, Mark Fisher, Mary Cassatt, John Lavery. 
A.S. Hartwick, Max Beerbohm, they're, they're just a few of, of the many artists who painted him. As you heard also this morning, Grace Gifford did sketches of him. Uh, Philip Wilson Steer did. Um, Francis Dodd, Edmund Dulac, Maurice Greifenhagen, John Wheatley, Robert Ponsonby Staples. The list goes on. Now, this particular assembly of paintings comes from a page on the George Moore Association website. So you can go back to that page anytime if you like, and, and you'll find even more. But you notice on the left the comments of Max Beerbohm, who did umpteen sketches and cartoons of George Moore. And he, he talked about Moore's friendship with uh, Sickert, Steer and Tonks in particular, in Chelsea. And he said, they on their side revered him as the one mere critic with whom they could talk as with one of themselves. Now, a pioneering feature of Moore's prose in these particular works, these were some of his, his writings in the period from 1883 to 1895, but the art images will go on long after that. But a pioneering feature in some of these is what was often described as literary impressionism, a style that invests graphic description with references, some of them visually artistic. It's a form of cultural intertextuality, really. It's an espousal of a painting mode that is, for Moore, the epitome of the rejection of Victorian certainty. And where it's in Moore's uh, novels of those kinds, you'll find that it's evidence of his admiration for the French innovations. And that's because innovation uh, in impressionism in this case, whether it's on canvas or it's in print, it has some clear characteristics. The initial anti-romantic and anti-academic stimulus of its French practitioners is really important. They wanted to engage with contemporary life. And they were reacting against the perceived tyranny of the academy at the time, which strictly limited the approved subject matter for painting, and also they limited the method of its rendition. The Academy wanted the heroic, the historical, they wanted religious symbolism, they wanted biblical pictures, um, and religious fervor as well, they were willing to have. They were all serious subjects, and they were to be carefully worked, and they were to be presented to the viewers as polished and definitive accounts, whether they were portraits of rulers or the hierarchy or whatever. Um, they wanted nobility, splendor, drama. In contrast, Impressionism would flaunt its rejection of traditional subjects. It would also reject linear narrative. It featured sketchy recording of allegedly fleeting, fleeting impressions with a consequent lack of sharp outline with the dismissal of conventional perspective, and it often referenced scientific reproduction of light. Um, interesting, even in, by 1951, the Encyclopedia Britannica was defining um, Impressionism as anti-academic and anti-romantic, and that was surely what Moore was doing and, and espousing. Now, just to illustrate that last mention of light, here's a picture by Claude Money. And in Moore's book, Celibates, in the story of Mildred Lawson, there are several 
prose descriptions of impressionistic light and movement. And I quote these two lines. They saw the morning light silver the water, the light mist evaporate, and the trees on the other bank emerge from vague masses into individualities of trunk and bough. And that's just as Claude Money would depict it, with, you're not seeing tree, uh, bough and so on emerging yet, but you definitely have the mist. Now, also in the story of Mildred Lawson, there are several different depictions of Mildred. And some of them are word pictures that are directly translated from the canvases of Auguste Renoir, like that one there. For instance, when Mar Mildred, who's an aspiring artist, goes to Barbizon to paint, Moore captures, captures her more as a portrait by Renoir than as a portrait painter herself. She's the very picture of Renoir elegance, and as Moore describes her, she's in an expensive white muslin and a black sash, which accentuated the smallness of her waist. Her little brown shoes, though they look a little black there, and brown stockings and the white sunshade through whose strained silk the red sun showed. Light through the parasol is a particularly um, recognizable impressionistic touch. Now, amongst other images of Mildred, she's seen going to a ball. And as Moore described her, she's in white tulle laid upon white silk. The bodice was silver fish scales, and she shimmered like a moonbeam. That wasn't actually Mildred. That was a portrait uh, by Giovanni Boldini, who was um, a painter of fashionable women in, in Paris in the period. And I think Moore's is a very plausible verbal rendition of that painting, which he called Fuoco d'Artificio. So cumulatively, in giving many and various pictures of, of Mildred, Moore's technique is akin to the serial approaches to water lilies and to haystacks by Monet. The outline and the structure of the word pictures appear conventional, while far from solid or uniform. Mildred is seen with a palette of tints, and the treatment is wholly on the surface. The reader gets a multiplicity of sketches rather than one. And it's never sharply delineated and never detailed. The influence of Impressionism on Moore is remarkable. Now, another image in that same story translates recognisable scenery to the page. In Moore's prose, it reads, a formal avenue of trim trees led out of the town of Melun. Another tree-lined avenue reappears a little later. This time it's said to be curving like a regiment of soldiers marching across the country. Now, that repetition of visual description is again um, a translation to prose of series paintings, such as Monet's depictions of poplars, in this case, as, as you see them. Moore, just in case you wouldn't notice it in the prose as clearly as one sees it on the canvas, Moore has Mildred remark the absence of English features. She missed the familiar hedgerows which make England like a garden. And it, with that particular reference, uh, he's marking the gap between French and English painting, a divergence which was also mirrored in the fiction of the period, as I said, and all of that was to the fore of his concerns. Now, while, Moore, while Mildred was at Fontainebleau on more of her painting expeditions, 
Moore writes several quick sketches of the forest there, and he gives rapid glimpses of, I quote, a desolate region of blasted oaks and sundered rocks, a verbal rendition that's repeated with variations. And those descriptions faithfully evoke Theodore Rousseau's series of Barbizon paintings, um, several of which he had exhibited in Paris with the Academy um, in the late 1860s. So just as, as Rousseau had done several sketches of Fontainebleau and the, um, and the um, charred oaks and so on, blasted oaks, Moore repeated his descriptions of, of those trees. Now, a different book altogether is Moore's um, highly successful novel, Esther Waters. And that's the story of a servant girl, which is not perhaps where you'd be likely to expect any novelistic theme that's associated with, with um, any artistic references. But in fact, it's soaked in them. The display of light and color in the Derby Day episode of Esther Waters gives a range of different pictorial examples, several of them being reminiscent of Impressionist technique and of specific paintings. At the beginning of the outing to the Derby, Moore writes, initially, it is a gray day with shafts of sunlight coming through and the various buildings on the Thames appeared in gray curves and straight silhouettes, just as in Monet's Thames at Westminster. Now, in the, as the day develops and they go on to the Derby, the gloaming lifts and the light catches here and there a blue dress. Now, it's not just one color that Moore describes then on, on the trip down. There's a swirl of images which proceeds at a pace incompatible with any detailed drawing. The colors flash past and they refuse objective solidity. Speeding past Esther's eyes are red and yellow chimney pots, round and black gasometers, pink petticoats on clotheslines, blue sky with light wispy clouds, green corn, red coated guards, and then William's racing gear of checks, green necktie, yellow flowers, and white hat with its gold inscription. The kaleidoscope is ever-changing. I'm really sorry that I don't have pictures of, of gasometers and, and um, William's racing gear. I couldn't find a painting for that in, in short notice. Now, in places, this visual profusion is matched by an echoing soundtrack in Moore's uh, novel. And it features fifes, drums, and cymbals for the merry-go-rounds. And what he calls a lamentable harmonium, a blind man singing hymns to its accompaniment. And a long, drawn-out murmur, continuous as the sea, swelled up from the course, a murmur which at last passed into words. Now, in this example here, Moore is expanding his Impressionism beyond the visual and the verbal to achieve the aural equivalent of indeterminate Impressionist imagery, the accumulation of symbols and brushstrokes, which eventually present as a recognizable whole. So Moore is representing the Derby Day murmur as offstage sound effect. Um, the, rep the whole reportage of the central event of the day the Derby Day itself, race itself is rendered impressionistically. So, just like in the race course scenes painted by Edgar Degas, the race is out of sight. 
It's filtered through Esther's vague impression. The only glance at a race is provided by her view of the last race. And from her angle, it's seen through a multitude of hats. And the few horses passed like, shepherd, like shadows flitted by. So for more, sorry, for more and Degas, there are more hats and umbrellas. Again, at the race course, you can barely see the, the horse's legs in the distance. For more and Degas, any all-inclusive historical approach is refused entirely. Now, another racing scene, and this time it's won by Edouard Menet, that also eschews fine detail, and it definitely doesn't tell you which horses first passed the post. So that was Moore's description of, of Derby Day, firmly tied to a French Impressionist attitude. But there was, as you may know, um, a very famous 1858 painting of Derby Day. It was done by English painter William Powell Frith. And you can see the total difference between Moore's novelistic description and Frith's picture. Fritz is in representational mode. It's very painstakingly constructed. It's absolutely stuffed with detail. He used a professional model. He used a professional photographer. And to get um, a, a horse and a jockey right, he engaged uh, a jockey to come to his studio and sit on a wooden horse while he painted it. So this was a, a very detailed, very carefully assembled image of, of the day. Um, and the difference between that posed detail in Fritz's panorama and the quickly rendered succession of images in Esther Waters, um, that's exactly the distinction that Moore was trying to make between time-honoured, definite portraiture of the mid-19th century and the avant-garde, impressionistic uh, outlines of the 1890s. So that's the gap between the conceptual and the perceptual, between the depiction which sets out to be definitive and uh, slanting the story for the viewers, and that which provides a suggestive agglomeration, really, of imagery and validates the readers in their own perceptions. Now, to go back to another artistic link and going back again to the story of Mildred Lawson in Celibates. There's another Degas connection here. Now, in that story, um, a painting is described as, and I quote, a woman who had just left her bath passed her arms into the sleeves of a long white wrapper. Now, that's seriously reminiscent of a whole range of Degas nudes. And in his book, Impressions and Opinions, Moore had written about it, Degas has again rendered the nude an artistic possibility. One sponges herself in a tin bath, another passes a rough nightdress over her lumpy shoulders, a woman who has stepped out of a bath examines her arms. So juxtapose women at their toilette um, uh, by Degas with what Moore tells us, and the similarity is unmistakable. Now, in addition to the connection with Moore, Renoir, Degas, and Manet, and Monet, Moore also incorporates a link to Camille Pissarro into Esther Waters. When Esther goes to the country to visit the family of Fred Parsons, whom she's uh, thinking of marrying, Moore paints an idyllic scene there of cooperative, tranquil family apple picking, which is absolutely a reproduction of Pissarro's apple picking 
as Eurani. To take a totally different tack. These are two of eight sketches that were uh, drawn up to mark Moore's 65th birthday when a play was put on at the Chelsea Palace in London. The play was by E.V. Lucas and it was entitled Fatal Beauty or The Moor of Chelsea. The sketches were by Norman Morrow and he was one of a, um, a family of famous Belfast artists who all did very well in London. They were all very active in the London art world. And here, uh, Morrow is purporting to copy the styles of William Orpen and of William Nicholson. Um, interestingly, Nicholson had studied at the Académie in Julien in Paris, as had Moore and several others. Now, here are two further sketches by Morrow. <clears throat> One supposedly in the style of Singer Sargent, and the other uh, by Ambrose McAvoy. Now, Ambrose McAvoy um, had studied at the Slade, which of course was the, the home of Steer and Tonks and um, those, and McAvoy was uh, influenced by Whistler a lot, and he was a very successful portrait painter. Um, as you can see, uh, several interesting titles have been appended by Morrow, or possibly Lucas to these, and the singer-sergeant one is the, uh, the, the Ologian. Um, which we know is a, a dig at, at Moore and his uh, Brook Carith and other ventures into biblical inspired prose. Um, the dramatist in muslin, you can see him there with Ambrose McAvoy. I, I must go back to the other titles. Oh, A Young Man's Confessional at the, at the Cafe Royal, which is where Moore and others were to be found and where Orpen had uh, actually painted him and many others in the circle and then the, the portrait of, of the gentleman. Moore was ever and always um, in the gentleman class, even though he broke some of the rules a lot of the time. So with those few glimpses of Moore uh, in his prose and in, in the art that was um, done to mock him, to honor him, to commemorate him, to reflect his importance in society of the time and many times afterwards, I shall leave you and I'm sure that you will find many more glimpses of more in due course. this if I may. Thanks very much, uh, Adrian. And uh, it's a genuine privilege and pleasure to be here. And thank you to Simon uh, for your introduction and part in this wonderful gathering. Uh, fifth business, my paper is called George Moore and the Cultural History of Music in Ireland. And I'll explain that title right at the very end of my talk. Um, I must say just before I begin that that 
wonderful death mask of Moore reminds me very much of uh, Edward Elgar in Mortal Repose. I don't know anybody who's seen the famous photograph of, of Elgar in his deathbed. It's very, very similar. I think it's probably just the Edwardian moustache, but there's something almost uncannily alike about it. I'd like to begin uh, by thanking Mary Pierce for having invited me to take part in this symposium on George Moore, if only because, for my part at least, this occasion provides an opportunity to make admittedly very modest amends for having overlooked Moore completely in my work on the relationship between music and the Irish uh, literary imagination, mea maxima culpa. And yet it would appear that I am anything but alone in this kind of dereliction. Notwithstanding the formidable heft of recent Moore scholarship in which Mary herself has played such a distinguished part, GM, to use that well-beloved abbreviation, continues to lie offshore like a vast Cunard liner waiting to dock in port. In the words of one recent commentator, Moore, to alter the metaphor, tends on the whole to be denied a place at the top table, unquote. For many people, indeed, Moore remains yesterday's man, another commonplace description, and a forgotten hero of the fin de siècle. He is a neglected precursor of Joyce. He is the bete noir of the Irish literary revival in general and of Yeats in particular. He is the English Zola and so on. Something, to paraphrase Philip Larkin, is always pushing Moore to the side of his own life. The prolific nature of Moore's vast literary estate is surely complicit in this enterprise, to say little of the writer's ex exceptionally extensive network of friends and enemies in Paris, Dublin, and London. Above all, perhaps, as Adrian Fraser makes clear in his magisterial biography of Moore, GM's resistance to school or party or to any prevailing category of reception history impeded his afterlife as a self-standing artist. Fraser adds that, quote, he died as neither an Irish patriot nor a Roman Catholic, unquote. But that was perhaps the least of it. He belonged, it seems, everywhere and therefore nowhere. It is true that GM reminds me of another Irish Catholic who worked in the world at large and who spent the latter part of his life in Britain, namely his namesake, Thomas Moore, who died in 1852, the year of GM's birth. Tom Moore has also endured something of a half-life in literary reception history, even if this shadowy state of affairs has improved considerably over the past 20 years. I once asked Declan Kybert, whom Mary mentioned earlier, about Tom Moore's complete absence from Inventing Ireland, which first appeared in 1995, and he told me that he had simply forgotten about him, which is a sure enough indication of how far Tom Moore had fallen out of sight by then. One of Tom Moore's biographers, Helen Hoover Jordan, remarked in 1975 that, quote, critics observed that the author of Lalla Rook and the Irish Melodies would not produce the school of Moore, or as the school of Wordsworth or Byron had arisen, because no other poet could work in the two media of music and poetry, unquote. The critics were right. The luster of Moore's reputation in the years following the publication of Lalla Rook in 1817 no more secured his position as an English romantic than it redeemed his ambiguous standing as an Irish proto-nationalist. To work in the two media of music and poetry was to fall between two stools. 
I'm tempted to add that something similar may have happened to George Moore, and that he likewise fell between the two stools of French Impressionism and Irish Modernism, even if many scholars recognise Moore's fiction, and in particular, of course, his novel The Lake from 1905, as a fundamental source for Joyce's stream of consciousness in general and the achievement of Ulysses in particular. And this is to say nothing of a host of other premonitory achievements on Moore's part, not least in relation to Joyce's Dubliners and its debt to the untilled field. But in summoning TM in relation to GM, so to speak, I am in danger of merely adding to that conjunctive reception history which has so strikingly determined George Moore's significance in the present day. Even the website of the George Moore Association, in its persuasive reading of Moore as a fundamentally transitional figure, locates Moore's life and work under the governance of a recurring preposition from the 19th century to the 20th century, from naturalism to modernism, from fiction to autobiography, from Ireland to France and from France to Britain, and so on. In a similar way, the meaning we attach to Moore is perpetually defined, at least in part, by reading him in relation to his forebears and contemporaries, Moore and Wagner, Moore and er Edward Martin, Moore and Yeats, Moore and Shaw, Moore and Dujardin, and of course, Moore and Joyce. Given these habits of reception history, the conjunction Moore and music also seems to arise as a natural consideration, not only in relation to Moore's musical dependencies as a writer of fiction, but also in relation to the cultural history of music in Ireland. It is the latter that will preoccupy me in this brief paper, even if I have very occasional recourse to Moore's novels in the tentative enterprise of restoring GM's role in that musical history. I once remarked that music is the sovereign ghost of the Irish literary imagination. Thus identified as a formative presence in the work of Moore, Tom Moore, that is, John Millington Singh, Bernard Shaw, W.B. Yeats, James Joyce, and indeed Sam Beckett, it is difficult to overlook that recurring pattern of musical beginnings and verbal endings, which, with the notable exception of Yeats himself, underpins the emergence of an Irish literary modernism haunted by the absence of actual music, which is to say its sounding forms, and yet preoccupied by its condition of meaning. Even in Yeats's case, the rival claims of music and poetry remained of acute account right through to the broadcasts he made for the BBC on the subject of music as speech in the closing years of his life. Yeats, the implacable enemy of music per se, nevertheless conceded its dangerous and ineffable sway over the certain good of words alone. And this antagonism was fortified by another rival claim which initially dogged Yeats's emergence as poet and indeed as a man of the theatre. That claim, of course, was the short-lived but immensely influential ascendancy of the Irish language as an indispensable agent of cultural retrieval. It is a commonplace, but nevertheless a controversial one, to argue that Yeats's vision of Irish cultural autonomy overcame the Gaelic League and won the day. Even Singh, after all, wrote his plays in English. Irish itself, like music, was remaindered or marginalised in this grand enterprise. The Abbey Theatre was preponderantly an English language institution, it still is, and although traditional music would become partly on this very account, 
a vigorous emblem of the free state, a kind of Irish language monke, and now the definitive global signature of Irishness itself, Irish music in the European tradition all but lapsed into silence. Even today, the history of art music in Ireland between the turn of the century and the founding of the Irish Free State in 1922 remains fugitive and insecure. It is a safe bet, for example, that the operas of Robert O'Dwyer, Michele Esposito, Geoffrey Molyneux Palmer, and Thomas O'Brien Butler, all of whom set Irish language libretti and or operas on Irish subjects between 1901 and 1910, are, with one or two fleeting exceptions, unknown to Irish cultural history, despite the vigorous remembrances of the decade of centenaries that is now coming to a close. One might even say that the prospect of imagining Ireland operatically was a fitful but unmistakable episode doomed to silence after the revolution of 1916, when, in the words of one contemporary musician, Joseph O'Neill, quote, Dublin was principally interested in war and politics, unquote, adding that the city sank into its humdrum musical life following the 1916 revolution. And if I may just put in a little verbal footnote that occurred to me the other day, some recent research on opera in Ireland between 1901 and 1916 has documented as many as 1,000 operatic performances, either in the Theatre Royal or the Gaiety Theatre during that period, a number never since nearly approached. Beyond the purview of specialised scholarship, George Moore's part in this hidden history remains little known. I draw attention to it here not to exaggerate Moore's influence on Irish opera, which as far as I can see was vestigial, but rather to indicate the extent to which Moore's own profound immersion in Wagner's operas and music dramas, which among much else had explicitly shaped both the plot and characterization of his 1898 novel Evelyn Innes, in which the composer Ulick Dean is based on Yeats himself, underwrote his ambitions for Dermot and Gronia. I should add in passing that to imagine Yeats as a composer surely gives the game away as far as Moore's musical ambitions were concerned. Dermot and Gronia was the play which he co-wrote with Yeats for the Irish Literary Theatre in 1901, as we heard indeed earlier today. Moore's ambitions, in fact, transcended the actual production of the play at the Gaiety Theatre in Dublin in October of that year, but they also conflicted with Yeats's dramaturgy and post-dramatic, poetic dramatic diction. Anyone who has read Jim May's excellent introduction to his edition of the manuscript materials of Dermot and Gronia, published by Cornell in 2005, will know that GM was ultimately intent on Dermot and Gronia not as a play, but as an opera. His correspondence with Edward Elgar leaves us in no doubt in that regard. Moore would continue in his attempts to persuade Elgar to cut the text, reshape it as a libretto, and set it as an opera for years afterwards. Right up to 1914, he was expressing to Elgar his disappointment that this did not transpire. Of course, it was Elgar who had written the brief incidental music for the original production at GM's request, but it is perhaps no less significant that Moore told Yeats during rehearsals for the first and only production of Dermot and Gronia that their play didn't matter. Quote, what matters is the twisting of the rope. 
we either want to make Irish the language of Ireland or we don't. And if we do, nothing else matters, unquote. Moore's reference here to the English title of Hyde's play, Coson Sugoin, which Moore rehearsed in his own home in Eli Place and which was premiered alongside Dermot and Gronia, is nevertheless disingenuous, given that as early as August 1901, Moore wrote to Elgar offering to reset Dermot or even to abandon the topic altogether in favour of a full-scale operatic libretto. Everyone was lying to everyone else, it seems, or at least being evasive about their intentions. For one thing, Yeats had no intention whatsoever of making Irish the language of Ireland, at least not in artistic terms. And for another, both he and Moore had engaged English actors to play in Dermot, an ultimately poor decision summed up by Gerard Fay, as Jim May reports, Jim May's reports, as follows. The production had, quote, this place in Irish theatre history, that it was the last time Dubliners had to call on English actors before they could see a production of an Irish play, unquote. Despite its poor reception, Dermot and Gráinne was initially well received by the Irish press and a now famous review of the first performance by Singh, published in France, partly explains why. Quote, it happened that during an interval of Dermot and Gráinne, as was the custom in this theatre, the people in the gallery began to sing some of the old popular songs. Until that moment, these songs had never been so heard, sung by so many people together to the old lingering Irish words. The whole auditorium shook. It was as if one could hear in these long, drawn-out notes with their inexpressible melancholy the death rattle of a nation. First one head, then another was seen to bend over the programme notes. People were crying. Then the curtain went up. The play restarted in a deeply emotional atmosphere. For an instant, we had glimpsed, hovering in that hole, the soul of a nation. For Seamus Dean, who cited this passage in an essay on Singh over 40 years ago, its significance relates directly to the disappearance of Irish as an artistic medium, redeemed perhaps by the Hiberno-English of Singh's own plays. But I'm citing it for another reason. If Singh glimpsed the soul of a nation in these Irish language songs, neither he nor anyone else on that night could have anticipated the cultural eclipse that this visionary moment would entail. And even if George Moore himself persisted for a while longer with the Gaelic League, and with Douglas Hyde in particular, this was, according to Hyde himself, a disaster waiting to happen. However, less than a year after Dermot, Moore's famous Gaelic lawn party took place on the 19th of May 1902, at which he hosted and directed a production of Hyde's play in English translation, The Tinker on the Ferry, with incidental music by Michele Esposito, an Italian composer resident in Dublin since 1886 and the uncrowned king of the Royal Irish Academy of Music. Uh, Adrian Fraser remarks that, quote, this was Moore's idea of a delightful Irish theatre, but it lasted for only one performance, unquote. Yeats and the Fay brothers, meanwhile, were headed in a different direction, and so ultimately was Moore. But one could argue that without the incidental music which Esposito wrote at Moore's behest for this occasion, he would never have written his second and last opera, which sets a libretto by Belinda Butler of Hyde's play 
and which was performed by the Dublin Amateur Operatic Society at the Gaiety in March 1910 and then never heard of again. In fact, Esposito did not take a curtain call at the final performance, but left the theatre in deep despair. By then, by 1910, the brief flowering of original Irish opera in Dublin was at an end. It carried forward into something other than itself, as in Singh's Playboy of the Western World and Joyce's The Dead, to say little of the literary Wagnerism of Moore's The Lake. And therein lies the point. Like Singh's Soul of a Nation, Irish language opera, or Irish opera of any kind, fluttered briefly in the cultural consciousness of the emerging nation-state and then disappeared. George Moore's part in this fleeting appearance was perhaps more avocational than effectual, but it was nevertheless highly significant, even if his dreams of opera came to nothing. There is a second shorter musical consideration which attaches to Moore, and I would like to inspect this briefly before bringing this paper to a close. To that end, allow me to enlist his exact contemporary, the Irish composer Charles Villers Stanford, 1852 to 1924, in relation to Moore himself, and also in relation to Bernard Shaw, 1856 to 1950, and Edward Elgar, 1857 to 1934. So I'm just reciting those dates dutifully to point out how close these people were as contemporaries. Although I have been unable to ascertain any link whatever between Moore and Stanford, even if it seems inconceivable that they did not know each other, there are instructive parallels to be drawn between the reception histories of both men. If ever the phrase yesterday's man or forgotten hero has afflicted a composer, it is Stanford. Born in Dublin but resident in London and Cambridge for most of his life, he left Ireland at the age of 18, Stanford was to prove decisive in the reanimation, one might say rehabilitation, of British musical life between 1880 and his death. As a prodigiously gifted composer, conductor, and professor of composition, Stanford's musical achievement was immense. Twelve operas, seven symphonies, three piano concertos, a host of oratorios, choral music, and without question, one of the greatest musical settings of the Requiem Mass are among his many accomplishments, forgotten though these now largely are. It is impossible, nevertheless, to give the merest account of music in Victorian and Edwardian Britain without privileging his works. And yet, despite a compelling revival of interest in Stanford's oeuvre during the past 30 years, it remains the case that the greater number of his compositions has never been performed in Ireland. Moreover, he has not been reclaimed as an Irish composer, a designation, incidentally, which extends beyond national ascription, given Stanford's immersion in the music of the country of his birth. Unlike Oscar Wilde, yet another contemporary, born in 1854, Stanford, like Moore, if to a greater degree, remains in the waiting room of Irish cultural history. And also like Moore, he has long since been overtaken in the annals of reception history by a kindred soul. In fact, I would argue that Moore's eclipse by James Joyce compares closely to the diminishment of Stanford's reputation in favour of Elgar. If we ask, as Moore's scholars seem perpetually to do, why the untilled field and the lake axiomatically defer to Dubliners and Ulysses, to say little of the similarly 
deferential ranking of Hale and Farewell in relation to a portrait of the artist as a young man, we might well ask, in turn, a similar question of Stanford's requiem in relation to Elgar's The Dream of Gerontius, or indeed of Stanford's symphonies and Irish rhapsodies in relation to Elgar's orchestral music. As for answers to such questions, the prevailing response in the case of Moore and Stanford would appear to have been, thank you very much, gentlemen, but we'll take it from here. This sense of cultural eclipse, moreover, has been hastened by the antics of Bernard Shaw. Shaw's mockery of Moore and Stanford alike can partly be explained by his determination to position himself as the national heir, the natural heir, that's a Freudian slip, as the natural heir to Richard Wagner, a preposterous ambition, but one which gained traction because of Shaw's controversial but widely disseminated readings of Wagner, and also because of his influence as the most popular music critic in England during the 1880s and 1890s. It is true that after he established himself as a dramatist, Shaw's jeering savagery in relation to German and English music alike abated, but by then the damage had been done. Without a moment's further scruple, moreover, he took up the case of Edward Elgar, whose allegiance to the oratorio and the symphony did not trouble Shaw one whit, despite the fact that he had attacked English, the English cultivation of both genres as being a stone-dead enterprise uh, in his gala years as a critic. But Shaw's animadversions would not have been enough to remainder Stanford to the past tense of British and Irish cultural history. The same might be said for Yeats's later repudiation of Moore, to say little of Joyce's early and callow attack on Moore in the day of the rabblement. A force greater than personal animosity or ambition was responsible in either case for the recessionary progress of Moore and Stanford into the half-light of cultural remembrance. Declan Kybert, for the second and last time, has identified this force as, quote, the desire for a masterwork, by which I think he means the purposed unfolding of Joyce's art in particular through the agency of a singular renunciation of the writer's busy catalogue in favour of a very small number of works that would exhaust the genres to which these belonged. Elgar, although less extremely, moved in the same direction. Two symphonies, not seven, one set of orchestral variations, not six, and one oratorio comprised the masterworks by which he claims our permanent attention. By comparison, the restless extravagance and prolificity of Moore's catalogue and the industrious pursuit by Stanford of virtually every generic musical model available to him came to appear supererogatory to this desire. Homi Baba's supremely persuasive identification of the national longing for form in post-colonial literature articulates a related concept which we might engage in seeking to explain this preference. In this respect, Ulysses is more than a novel and Elgar's first symphony is more than an orchestral masterpiece. However differently, both works respectively answered and indeed satisfied this longing for form in Irish writing and English music to a definitive degree. In Elgar's case, the first symphony 
was also the first English symphony to achieve a truly international reception history, precisely on account of its transcendent Englishness and its post-imperial romanticism. Joyce's Ulysses, likewise, would become definitive of Irishness in the very avant-garde of European fiction. We may argue that Joyce's Wagnerian impulses and musical dependencies summon the vital precedent of Moore, just as we might legitimately insist that without Stanford, Elgar would never have made his way to the top table. We may even seek to find a place there for Stanford and indeed for Moore through the agency of symposia such as this one. But however we proceed, whether or not as advocates of Moore or Stanford for that matter, our fundamental obligation is not perhaps advocacy, but a better understanding of the labyrinths of cultural and political history from which such figures emerge. When I sat down to write this paper, the epigraph to Robertson Davies' novel Fifth Business, published in 1970, floated up to my mind. Here I offer it as an envoi. Quote, those roles which being neither those of hero nor heroine, confidant nor villain, but which were nonetheless essential to bring about the recognition or the denouement, were called the fifth business in drama and opera companies, organized according to the old style. The player who acted these parts was often referred to as fifth business. That is how I now think of Moore, at least in terms of the cultural history of music in Ireland. He is indeed essential to its meaning and circumstance, and his work is proverbially the fifth business that resolves and confirms what happened to Irish art music between 1900 and the Easter Rising. His Wagnerian signatures are vital to that story, and I am unlikely to forget as much ever again. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. 
seeking in the dull oblivion of the land's weak. Well, I think so, and uh, uh, he's had a very bad press by being eclipsed by Elgar on the one hand, and um, by what happened to music here on the other. I mean, most, as I said, most of Stanford's music has never been heard. Heard. There are a few things, but but most of it is, is. I mean, um, the Requiem Mass is an absolute is an absolute masterpiece. It's it's certainly one of the greatest Requiem settings of the 19th century. Mm. Uh, you would never think so. Uh, there's, I think, there's one. A sort of recording of it in the mid 90s, about 1995, 96, um, really a recording of a performance rather than a professional recording of the work, which was issued on the Naxos label. But I mean, the, the, more generally, the, the attraction for me in terms of trying to figure out Moore, part of the mosaic, is that, you know, Moore and Stanford are both sort of eclipsed by. Joyce and, and Elgar, mm -hmm. and then, of course, because of the connection between Moore and Elgar, it seems to make the, kind of um, sense. I never knew how to say Espasito's name before. I've 
I would have been mispronouncing it for all these 72 years of that, that I've been on the face of the earth, but he, he remained friends with um, that whole set of writers, didn't he? Yes. Uh, to and some he extent, had daughters well, or? well, he did. The, well, the expositor literary connections are a separate matter, to some extent. But you're absolutely right. By the way, esposito rather than esposito, is that what you're wondering about? I think I was saying it the other way. Yeah. Yeah. No. Well, I was just talking last night coincidentally to somebody whose teacher Robert, I think, will know. Well, certainly, will even know Una Hunt. And I, I was talking to Una last night, and Una's uh, teacher was Rona Marshall, and she was a student of Esposito's, and she always, Mrs. Marshall always said Esposito, so mm -hmm. I think it must have been yeah. pronounced that way in Dublin. But mm -hmm. we Irish are pretty good at mispronouncing things, as you and probably I know. I don't doubt it. Uh, Sorry, Esposito is in Spanish, it's her name. And it used to be the same, I think it was the same, that um, orphans were given when they were abandoned at, I'm sorry, when they were abandoned at uh, Nan's uh, convents or, you know, uh, places like that, uh, because nobody knew the surnames, because nobody knew their uh, fathers. They were um, um, called ex or Z exposito, because wow. they were put in an exposito place. Oh. So that means that you know that at one stage, um, you know, an ancestor yeah. of this particular musician, you know, was um, was put into. Well, he, into an exposed, that's a place where, you know, you could, you could Naples, leave the, the so. baby so the nuns could, you know, yeah. uh, take care of, of him or her. Okay, that's remarkable. So. Well, definitely I can confirm the, the Dublin pronunciation of Esposito yeah. because generations of people who went through the RIAM exactly. for their music exams I mean, Rona Marshall and others, it was always Esposito. Yeah. And my grandmother, who would have not gone through the RIM at any stage, um, I think knew the family at one station, she always said Esposito. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But in any case, he, he, he had, well, famously, um, he, uh, um, <laughs> he had a connection with James Joyce, with, with regard to Joyce calling on him and uh, either he called in Joyce or Joyce called in him. I can't remember which it was now, but Joyce had some sort of altercation with one of his daughters, and um, they, that sort of sundered the relationship, and then mm. and the next day was the 16th of June, so that was the end of all of that. But, I mean, after, after Joyce had some success in the Fesh kill, again, I'm always getting these things mixed up, but I think he was placed third in the Fesh because he wouldn't attempt the sight singing, something like that. Um, Esposito was quite interested in cultivating him as a musician, and, um, but that didn't last very long. Um, mm. And there are other really remarkable connections which are not perhaps as well known between Esposito and Russian literature, but that's for another day, I think. Well, Moore used to spend several evenings, sorry, um, in the Espositos having dinner. He was there many times. Yeah. Yeah. And when Esposito got a, some sort of a scholarship or a prize from the Prince of Monaco, Moore sent letters around to people saying, wonderful, Esposito has been recognized abroad, you know, pay attention to this man. Mm. Well, I mean, it's, it's, that's even more significant because, you know, Esposito has never had his due, really. I mean, Stanford is a larger figure, there's no doubt, but Esposito has, he, you know, his music is still performed in the Fesh Kill and so on, um, but very little of it is recorded. We have a question back here. Sorry, I'm kind of now 
microphone here without actually being called upon. But um, so I don't want to interrupt this uh, this conversation. But Mary, I, I wondered if I could just pick up on your really fascinating talk about um, the the art and the connections between Moore's prose and and impressionism. Uh, it put me in mind of a passage I'm sure you're familiar with in um, Drama in Muslin, where he's describing the ball at the at Dublin Castle, and he's looking. Uh, you know, we're looking out across the sea of colours and, and um, the dresses and the flowers and so on. Um, and that's very much done in the sort of style that you were talking about, sort of picking out details like Esther, sort of colours flashing past her. Now, I think I'm right in saying that when um, Moore republished as, uh, the drama as, as just muslin, he removed that passage, or at least he, he toned it down, um, Possibly because he was, in a sense, kind of distancing himself from the the very French uh, influences. I'm just wondering, um, in your looking at the relationship between um, visual arts and, and Moore's prose, did you see a sort of progression, a change? Did he change the style of his prose as as the style of art that he was looking at changed, or, or was it fairly static? I think the answer to that is probably that he did at every turn. Yeah. And in any revisions of Muslim, and I'd have to go back to check the exact things, um, I, I know one of the descriptions of the ball in Dublin Castle was actually meant, the detail was meant to mock, you know, um, where he, he lightened people's shoulders to this and the hair to the other, and yeah. it, was, it was just over the top which was an exact reflection of the excesses of what was going on in the ballroom. <laughs> yeah. So whether you call that impressionistic style or not, I, I don't know. It was, it was overloaded of detail anyway. <laughs> um, and yes, I mean, if, if you move on from drama in Muslim in the 1880s, and then you go to the like of Evelyn Lynn's Sister Teresa at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th, um, then you come to the very, very spare prose of of the untilled field. Um, but again, the cumulative effect of some of that very sparse prose is in fact, in the end, an impressionistic uh, vision of, of life and a place, that you're not getting the detail, that you're, you're getting the, the bare minimum from which you you draw the prejudices, the, pri the privileges, the, the pressures, and so on of what's going on. And the same would apply to The Lake, which is you know, a wonderful book. Um, the Brook Carith is really, I think, a return to a storytelling, um, a mixture of folk tale and storytelling. And, you know, it's the kind of book that nobody would put on a course in a college nowadays because nobody would read it as far too long. It might be wonderful, but I mean, people want books that thick and, and a summary at the beginning. Um, and I didn't see, for all that he creates atmosphere of what he saw in what I would call the biblical countryside, uh, I didn't see French artistic images there so much. Um, like everybody around that period from 1870 to maybe 1920, there was a lot of Japanese influence. And I wondered if I should go back to some of his later books to see where the ukuyue or some of these styles uh, are. Imaged. But no, but thank you for the prompt. I'll go looking. 
And I think just, just to follow up on what you were just saying there about the Japanese art, didn't he praise Whistler for leaving things out precisely for yes. that? Yes, yes, uh, yeah. indeed. Yeah. Well, it was very anti-Frit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, there's nothing um, maybe inherently musical about Moore's literary Wagnerism, but this fellow Chip, uh, what's Chip's last name? English. He's at the yeah, uh, yeah. Um, teaches in London, St Mary's or something like that. Yeah. Um, Stoddard Martin. Martin is the yes. name yes. he yes. writes yes. under. Yes. Yeah. But he has a book on literary Wagnerism. Yes. But he, if he were here, and he often would attend these things, mm. he would be harping on about. Um, or not, I shouldn't say harping on. He would be illuminating the subject <laughs> of Moore's practice of using light motifs in what he took to be a symphonic way. Mm -hmm. So he would actually get verbal phrase elements and he would set up, repeat them somewhat systematically, but he thought he was transferring uh, elements of musical composition actually into narrative. It, it, it didn't have to do with you know, the sound of the words or something mm -hmm. like that. Mm. But actually the, the structure of writing a... Um, yeah, well, I, I th I, in fact, I think I've read this. It, there was some collection to which Stoddard Martin contributed it's quite a bit. It's in Man yeah. of Wax, yeah. 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 book of essays. Yeah. I think it's in there. So. Um, yeah. uh, but, but he's I, still doing that. I mean, he's still elaborating those ideas. Yes. He sent best wishes to everybody who knows. He's in California today. <laughs> I've, is it, is it, who is it? Mercutio who says, ask me, ask me tomorrow and you shall find me a great man. <laughs> ask for me tomorrow and you shall find me unmoored as far as all this information is concerned. But I, 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 I do remember that, but I've never really been clear. Um, it's not as if I don't know the difference between literary Wagnerism and Wagnerism, but if you take something like Evelyn Innes, I think it's, literal Wagnerism in that case, because yeah. the characters are so directly imitated yeah. of, you know, the, the great Wagner her heroines, yeah. Yeah. Um, that they're, they're behaving and doing things. And again, since I mentioned Robertson Davies, I don't know if anybody else knows Robertson Davies' work here, but there's another novel called A Mixture of Frailties, in which um, an opera singer uh, comes from a very sort of simple background. It's very reminiscent of Evelyn Innes. Yes, In fact, I would love to know whether Davies um, had read Evelyn I suspect he had read Evelyn Innes. Yeah, it happened yeah. himself, perhaps. Yeah. But I, I honestly don't know. But it's very, very, very similar. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. but the guy, this is, I'm getting a little bit off track, but the, um, this friend of Moore's that was, Joyce attributed the, uh, the example of his novel to the uh, interior monologue, but the oh, Dujardin. 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 Yeah. He ha he was involved in this review called uh, the Wagnerian yes. Review yeah. in, yes. in yeah. Paris. Yes, oh. yes. All this Schopenhauer Schopenhauerian philosophy. Yeah. 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 Uh, but they they were double dyed in that discourse of oh, oh, totally. Wagnerianism. The, yeah. The, uh, well, if you think of of um, Esther Waters you know, how it starts and how it finishes. Yeah. This, this was Moore's interpretation of, of Wagnerism in another way. Yeah. You know, um, and he, he repeated it in something else that escapes my failing brain at this moment. Mm. But uh, 
then Wagner faded, you know, uh, Moore absorbed, I think, some of the prejudice in Paris at the time of anti-Wagnerism as well. You know, he was torn between <laughs> loving it and, and, and going to Bayreuth uh, and then also hearing what his friends in, in Paris were saying. But then Wagner was recuperated in French opinion, I think, by first, mm. about 1895. So. Mm. Yeah. No, what a stunning afternoon. <laughs> That's all I can say and at the end of November. And thank you to all the speakers and thank you. Uh, to Mary and the organising committee for putting it together. It's been absolutely amazing. Um, one little observation I had, when you were talking about reception theory, I think you're very right, Harry, in the sense that it, it can work against a lot of writers. Mm. And I'm always attracted to the writers who refuse to be categorised, who refuse to fit into the nice little mould that literary critics want to put them in, or artistic critics want to put them mm. into. But the problem with Moore is that, my God, there are so many categories. First of all, the over is, is, is immense. And then we have all these tantalizing ways in which we, prisms through which we can regard his work, yeah. be it art, be it music, be it history, be it culture, you know, be it just straight literature. Mm. Um, because he has, he, has, he has a bit of everything. And I suppose what's fascinating and at the same time intimidating about him is just that variety, that you can never pin him down, that he refuses to be pinned down, and that he can be read on so many different levels. Yes, I, I, I think that that's entirely right. Um, but it's, it's almost um, a formative kind of pre uh, prejudice in the sense that, uh, I'm sort of trying to get at it a little bit there, that it's, it's a very 20th century way of thinking about art, that voice and consistency is what matters. You know, after Ulysses, Joyce is um, writing what Nabokov called a cold pudding of a book, a mm. snore in the next room. Nobody was reading it. I don't know if anybody's reading it since, except Joyce scholars, perhaps. But he had an audience with him until then, and he had a sense of a progressive voice until then. It's, it's, and I don't know how self-consciously or not um, composers or writers cultivate this. I dare say they're not that self-conscious about it. But when they're being received in the aftermath of history, you know, you say, oh, that's Elgar. I mean, I would know that anywhere. Oh, that's obviously Joyce, or that must be Singh. And I think it's harder, perhaps, to do that with a writer as versatile and various as Moore. But I yeah. don't know, am I right or wrong? I just, no, I think, yeah. that's, I think that is a promotion, you know, promotional problem, so to speak. Uh -huh. Like, you can take a chunk of Thomas Hardy yeah. from one novel and stick it into another, and you wouldn't know it had been done. You know, it yeah. would be the same style, really. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, in Moore's, he just completely puts the past behind him and tries something new. Okay, um, so that's very interesting. So that might, might partly explain what the problem is. Yeah. Which, of course, shouldn't be a problem in this day and age when people want forever the new and the changed. And, you know, I mean, yeah. heavens above, Moore dealt with all the things that are controversial at the moment, if you think about it, mm. through its stories, all the things that people want to talk about. <laughs> Well, you're not entirely dead if all these people get up on a Friday afternoon, they come here, they sit here all afternoon, a lot of smart people in the room talking about George Moore. He's, he's not dead yet. No, you know? no. Well, much enlightened, too, by, by, by our lovely music. Hear her. I mean, cheers for Kayla. Hear her. <laughs> I just want to say, you just said he's not dead yet. 
looks alright now. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't look too healthy over there. But he... I just want a quick question for Mary. Um, all the representations and paintings of Moore, are there any that you can just walk straight to in Dublin and see? Yes. National Gallery and Hugh Lane Gallery. And are they on display? They're on display. In the... Okay. In both. In the... No. Okay. Yeah. And, and there's a lady just beside uh, David, just behind you. No, I was going to, well, to make a suggestion to, <laughs> to Simon. Um, we had no chance to visit the whole museum, but I mean, as you've seen here, there are quite a few experts on George Moore. So you might need maybe a board giving information about uh, the author whose mask um, you exhibit. So I think that you should take advantage of the situation. <laughs> and you know, and because um, that, that would be, I think that, that would be a really um, a way to promote, um, to promote the author by getting to know more about him and you know, the impact he caused um, during his life. Uh, so that was all. Yeah, well, I mean, one of, one of the, and it's kind of, kind of thematically consistent, I suppose, with the approach of the talks this afternoon. Um, in a way, we're, we're a museum of, a, of an art form that's mass-produced, that people experience in their own homes, um, or, you know, on public transport, uh, or on a holiday. Um, and really, our job uh, as cultural institutions is to encourage people to engage with the art form. Um, and if we can send people out reading books, that's kind of the job done. And a lot of the ways that we try and do this is actually through engaging other art forms and commissioning new pieces of work that engage with the work of an author um, from the past. So, I mean, uh, to me what that means in, in relation to more is that at some point in the future there will be or, or we as an organisation will, it will become apparent at some point that there will be a very logical piece of work to be commissioned that engages with a piece of work of Moore's and that would then, you know, in turn encourage people to go and read that. I mean, it's, for us, uh, I mean, we, we, there was a, a, a beautiful installation that we did one time around, around a specific piece of work by an author named Nilo Fuelon, who was a, a television producer and journalist. Um, and she wrote this quite explosive memoir in the 1990s called Are You Somebody? And we, we produced a very unusual installation related to it, and then the book went into a new print run. As a result, it had drifted out of print. Bizarre, I mean, who, who would believe it? Like, you know, if it had drifted out of print. Um, so I think there are always these possibilities beyond, I mean, that's at least, it, that's the kind of, for us, that's what's interesting, is how can we, how can we show that something is relevant? rather than just say something mm -hmm. as relevant. Okay. Um, on, the, on the Stanford uh, uh, point, my little son is a chorister in St. Patrick's Cathedral, and um, every Tuesday and Friday after reading song, and it will happen this evening, uh, I say to him, oh, so who are you singing? Uh, and more often than not, he says, Stanford again. <laughs> <laughs> the one, the one, the one part of his music that never went out of circulation. So, yeah. Yeah. Stanford in G. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, thank you very much, and especially our musician, which uh, was a revelation to me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you.